you haven't been here for a while, it's traditional to do a bad rendition of the opening music um, before we start. So it goes like... I don't know why we went that way around it. Hello friends and welcome back to Radio Morpark, the podcast where we go through Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time, rating, reviewing, analysing, discussing, arguing and rambling. I am Colm, I am joined by Steve. And once again, returning to the uh, uh, podcast like like a big returning thing, it's Rose. Sorry, the coffee hasn't kicked in and my effort at coming up with a proper metaphor is all flat in her arse. But hey, your roses is back, the gang's all back together, so it's it's, it's going to be good. Um. Uh, I, I can only imagine by the, by the time we've recounted to the plot and I actually have to use critical talk, the coffee will have kicked in and I'll be, I'll be a fully functioning human being once more. Um, so we're here today to talk about uh, going postal. Um, so... I suppose we'll get into this, just talk about this now before we, we, we recount the plot, but uh, Rose, I, I asked you to, to come back on this one because I knew it was one of your favourite um, Discworld books. Uh, what, like, I'm sure we'll go into it in a lot of detail, but like, really broadly speaking, why is that? Why, why is this one one of your favourites? Um, for a few reasons, to be honest, but the very, very first one is... It's got my favourite opening scene of, I think, just about any Terry Pratchett novel. Um, also, this one has a lot more veterinary than most of them, and you got to love veterinary. But first and foremost, the opening with Moist von Lippig in a cell where he has been scratching through the walls for weeks and weeks, digging through what looked like crumbling cement, and he thought he had a way out, and <laughs> taking all of the old cement pushing it under his mattress or into his duvet, you know, really trying his best. He'd done this for weeks. He was almost out of jail. And when he makes his way through all of the old cement and he thinks that he's going to be able to tunnel out of jail and get out of being hanged, what he instead meets is a slab of fresh new cement and a new spoon. (laughs) It's one of my favourite things. It's one of my favourite veterinary things. It's one of my favourite introductions for a character. It's... You get to see what Moist is like, you get to see what Veterinary is like, you get this set up with this con artist who his luck maybe has just finally run out and you get a shiny new spoon. (laughs) (laughs) It's just one of the funniest introductions I've read. I remember the first time I read I nearly fell over laughing because it was so genuinely unexpected. I'd never seen that kind of device before. What a spoon? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was newfangled technology. (laughs) No, you get... It was all forks and knives in a fortune household until that spoon arrived. <laughs> well, I keep telling you guys Wexford was a little bit behind the time. It just got to us a little bit late. Ah, uh, Wexford, the Japan of Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think oh, it's because... Oh, a Godzilla attack. Ooh. <laughs> um, you get to see a lot of, uh, you know, people tunnelling out of jail. You get to see a lot of people attempting it and being caught. Very rarely do you see somebody being monitored tunneling out of system and somebody going, you know what, I'm going to let him have this because of hope. And Veterinary really thinks he's doing a nice thing here. It's like, I want to give him hope because hope is the most important thing. (laughs) Oh, it's just brilliant. Anyway, that's my favourite moments. That's why it's one of my favourite novels. Uh, Because this was, um, 
It's the first time I read this one. I had read, weirdly, Making Money before. Uh, but Gung Postal was one of the ones that I got soon after we started the podcast and said I won't read it until we get there. Um, which took longer than anticipated, but but here we are. Um, and I have I have ink running in my blood. My father is a postman, um, so so like this is you know it's a very solemn moment for me uh, reading this. Mm. You know, finally coming to terms with my deep dark family history. <laughs> Running away from dogs and uh, delivering magazines to old grannies. Uh, but that being that, we'll, uh, I suppose, just recount the plot to get everyone up to speed for anyone who, who um, will be listening to this not having read the book in a while. So, uh, as Rose is saying, it begins with, with Conman Moist von Litwig in the, the cells in Angmorpork, and he's attempting to escape. Um, but basically, it's a. Uh, doesn't seem like he can. He's then called into veterinary's office, and veterinary essentially offers him, um, says he can, uh, see, he can, he can walk outside the door, and the door just leads to a, a kind of black, fathomless pit, um, or he can uh, take over the running of the uh, long since. I don't know. If it's like officially defunct. It's more like gone so far into decline as to have utterly gone dormant and stagnated the uh, Angmorepark Postal Service and he reluctantly accepts that offer uh, so then he goes to the Postal Service follow, trailed by his um, his parole officer Mr. Pump, a golem uh, and in the postal uh, office he meets the two remaining employees Stanley who's a kind of pain obsessed I, I, what's his job in the post office again? <laughs> he just he kind of comes across the... as an intern of some sorts, you know. <laughs> yeah, and and junior postman Tolliver Groth, who, despite his name, is kind of very much the uh, the old hand. He's an eccentric character with a wig and a predilection for home remedies. Mm. Uh, but he's sort of very, uh, very romantic and nostalgic about the grand history of the post office, while also being utterly incapable of conceiving of any way of um, reviving its fortune. So he's sort of excited by Moist being there, but he doesn't seem too excited because we soon get the impression that Moist is one of uh, many people to have been given the position of Postmaster General recently. So, uh, Steve, what happens from there? So somewhere around this point, um, uh, basically once... uh Moist visits the post office. He kind of says nuts to this and tries to escape. And he gets to another neighboring town well outside of Ankh-Morpork uh, using like his usual trickery. And while he is resting in this town, uh, in the middle of the night, he is somewhat attacked by a Mr. Pump, who is a golem. Well, I say attacked. He is basically picked up and walked back to Ankh-Morpork against his will with uh, being flung over Mr. Pump's shoulder. So at this point, we realize that Veterinary has this has hired this golem basically to keep an eye on to make sure that he stays and does the job. And it's implied that if he refuses to do this, Mr. Pump can take uh, action against him, which is implied to be of a violent nature. Um, so... When he realizes that he's essentially trapped there, Moist, uh, he, oh, before, uh, sorry, before that happens, he, while he is in the post office, he also begins to hear voices. 
and he seems to think that it's the letters themselves which are packed into every single orifice of the post office uh, that they are because they're all so close together and that words themselves have a sort of magic something that we have learned from the Unseen University countless times before in previous Discworld novels um, we know that like when words get together that they, they form a sort of magic power of, them, of their own so he starts to hear these voices and he gets the sense that the, the, the letters want to be delivered genuinely want to be delivered so at that point he decides that He's kind of in for a penny, in for a pound. He might as well do his best to try and get the post office running, up and running again. And his first move in doing that is... Rose, tell us what the first move is. First move? Well, the next thing he does... Um, I might not get the chronology right. That's okay. Uh, the next thing... We never do. <laughs> <laughs> his next step is... Okay, he's got a golem to deal with. So he goes and visits the golem trust to have a word with the owner and find out exactly what the deal is with these golems. And there he meets the wonderful Adora Belle Deerheart. Do not laugh at her name. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Who points a bow and arrow at him and explains that she runs the Golem Trust, uh, how Mr. Pump functions, you know, and the function of all of the golems. Uh, What next? And well, around this time, we're also getting sort of a, a broader picture of, uh, I suppose, the, the context of communications in Ankh-Morpork and in the wider world with the clacks, which we've, of course, seen in, in previous novels from, uh, I think, from um, Fifth Elephant onwards. But we never really got a close look at how they operate. We Like, we gathered there's some form of semaphore. And here, you just have this context established that they were... Uh, I suppose they were initially started by kind of engineer businessmen, like by the you know the people who uh, who are running them, where um, uh, running them financially were also the people who are running them technically. But they've since been taken over by a bunch of plutocrats, uh, sort of I suppose like venture capitalists um, who have put money in and trying to they're trying to run it at a. I suppose to to make as much profit as possible by cutting costs wherever, including. They used to shut the clacks down for uh, an hour each day for repairs, but they no longer do that. But then because of that, they inevitably end up losing more time because they break down because there's not enough time for repairs. The conditions for the workers on them are a lot less safe. Um, And there's kind of uh, price hikes and so on about, about delivering messages uh, and so their board of directors, they're, it's run by a, a kind of piratical fellow called Reacher Gilt, um, who's, they're a little sort of, I, I suppose, like, uh, contemptuously amused by the idea of the post office running again, although Gilt being a sharper knife in the drawer is a little more wary because he understands if veterinary's doing it, he must have some, you know, some ace up his sleeve. Um so and, and this kind of continues throughout the the novel as, as um, Moist is begins delivering letters again. Uh, it, he he sort of he's using the figure of the Clax as kind of like a a Goliath to to build a David against you know to kind of well, whip up people's sense of like underdog romanticism about the post office and about how you know ferment this kind of this I suppose unrest with how the clacks are working but he kind of begins to believe that himself like he gets quite he, he sees a lot of himself in guilt but he's also all the more disgusted because of that and it's basically I suppose my, my stem to uh, 
becomes essentially like a mark for his own scheme in a way, and that like he's been building the post office up as this romantic old world, more intimate, more personal alternative to the like heartless, rootless clacks, and he begins to believe that more and more himself. Um, so he kind of sets himself up against the clacks with various uh, publicity stunts, like delivering a, a sack of mail to is it Pseudopolis, where he rents uh, he rents a really um, is a Pseudopolis or Stolat. Yeah, one of the nearby cities anyway, but he rents a really bad tempered horse um, and ends up kind of basically like bolting across the plains on this horse <laughs> and delivers the letters. Uh, and everyone's sort of so wowed by, by these various stunts he's doing that the clax begins to feel threatened. Hmm. And as well as that, he makes another a few other innovations as well, including uh, the invention of... Uh, paper stamps to put on letters, which uh, spurs Mr. Pin to become a stamp collector, uh, proclaiming that before this, now pins, pins are just child's play up until now, and now he realises stamp collecting is his true joy. Um, He's also, uh, before he can actually take his place as the proper postmaster general, in a figurative sense, uh, junior postmaster Grote puts him through a number of tests, from uh, what was it? The count is it the council. What was it? Uh, the post office workers friendly and benevolent society. Uh, they put him through a, a series of tests, including like basically being blindfolded and walking across uh, a cartoonish front lawn with uh, like you know uh, balls that he could trip on, or uh, was it like cartoon? What was it dogs or something that there's there? There, yeah, there's there's a dog there, and there's you know stuff like uh, I can't like um I can't remember exactly, but it's the equivalent of like upturned bits bits of Lego. Yeah, <laughs> all yeah. Of that is different annoying things you you could walk on. It kind of reminds me of um, the Simpsons episode, the Stonecutters. Like now you'll go through the unblinking eye or the paddling of the swollen ass. <laughs> but um, it all ends with um, putting their, his hand through a letterbox, which. If he had, if he had done that, it slices his fingers clean off, which he gets around. Um, I don't remember how he does that again. How does he get around it again? Uh, I'm not sure. I know he he's able to uh, kind of coax the dog because his family used to breed variants of that dog, and he knows how to, you know, he knows how to deal with them. I, I can't remember exactly what he does with the letter box, but mm. he comes through this anyway. As he said, it's very much in the vein of like like secret societies and things like that. Mm. Um, and despite despite being the ones to do this, the other senior postman that Grote called back to put him through this uh, uh, gauntlet of trials, they're sort of sceptical as to the point of you know all of it and whether he's you know whether he's really going to turn the post office around. But they begin to get excited when he starts delivering letters again and he um when he begins doing the, the mail runs to other cities and uh, he uses the press to his advantage here he has a lot of encounters with uh Satirissa, who we met in um mm. the truth uh where he's you know kind of like um getting interviewed by horde I, I really enjoy the sort of back and forth there of you know like him getting used to the way the media works where initially he'll kind of be shocked that his words have been construed in a certain way or mm. that they can construct a particular headline out of what he said even if it exactly isn't exactly something he said but then he gets used to that and begins kind of using it to I, I suppose to kind of like 
get across messages while stopping just short of crossing a line. Mm. Um, like, you know, when he's talking about the, I think he's talking about the clacks and he's, he's like, she keeps asking him whether he's kind of criticized him in some way. And he keeps refraining, but refraining in such a way that it's clear he kind of, you know, he isn't like sort of opening up criticism, uh, room for people to criticize them. But at the same time, leaving his own hands clean. Like, I think that element of it's really fun. Um, but yeah, so then he gets golems from uh, Adora Bell as as postmen, mm. um, and they're going around and they're they're delivering some of the posts too, uh, and at all of this kind of reaches its uh, the, at this stage the um, the the clacks begin to take them ser- the post off seriously as a, as a threat and well, what do they do, Rose? Yeah, so eventually he has caused enough trouble, enough commotion for the clacks for Reacher Gilt to take some sort of a measure, and Reacher Gilt being an absolute villain. He uses one of his cohorts, uh, who had been mentioned in the book previously. Um, basically, doesn't say what to do with Moise von Lippig, but just says, take care of this for me. And so his cohort is told, take care of this for me. This is a man in a gold-winged hat. Uh, he'll be in the post office. Sort the situation out for me. So at this point, Moist. Luckily, by pure sheer chance, um, Moist is on a date with the adorable Deerheart. He finally gets her on a date, brings her out for dinner, on the same night that Reacher Gilt sends what turns out to be a banshee to the post office to deal with Moist von Lipvig. And when... Re- when Can you remember the banshee's name? Mr. Grail or Grail? Grail, I think Mr. it is, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Grail. When Mr. Grail gets to the post office... Who does he see wearing a gold hat only senior postmaster Grote? Um, so this is where the situation actually has a proper villain and antagonist, really. Because he sets the post office on fire, the post office goes up in flames, Grote is injured, Stanley is injured, but Stanley has one of his moments. This is something that's been mentioned in the book previously, that sometimes Stanley has moments. Nobody ever really talks about what they are, but sometimes you have to distract Stanley with some facts or a question about pins, a question about stamps, to avoid him having a moment. (sighs) On this particular occasion, there is no such intervention, and Stanley has one of his moments and beats the living daylights out of a banshee, which he thought was some sort of large pigeon or bird or bat that was up on the rafters. (laughs) He injures uh, Mr. Grail. So that's how Stanley thankfully survives. Mr. Groth thankfully survives. The post office, however, is in flames, um, which Moist realises when he's on his date because it's like he can hear the letters. They reach out to him and he, he, he knows in advance the post office is on fire. They're all burning. He can hear them. So he and Adora Bell run back to the post office, at which point he sees what the situation is. Um, Grote gets out, Stanley gets out, and Moist has to do the very visually heroic thing, which is run back in for a cat. Mm-hmm. So he goes back into the post office to rescue this cat, and has a run in there with the injured but not dead Mr. Grail, um, which he thankfully finally gets the best of, and manages to rescue the cat, gets out of the post office. So it all works out for Mr. Grote, who winds up in hospital, Stanley, who's still alive, Moist, who's alive, the cat, who's alive, Mr. Grail is gone. But the post office has been burned to the ground. So at this stage, 
the game should have run out because the post office has no funding. It's gone. It's a shell. Veterinary can't fund rebuilding a post office because it's not something that's profitable. It's not something that can ever really be, you know, they can't put a lot of money into it. So this should be the bones of it. This should be it gone. At which point Moist does something very conmanish. Um, and he goes back to every church, every major church in Ankhmore Point <laughs> that he can find. Uh, he speaks to all of the prophets and priests and whoever and tells them that if they can get a message to their gods, please, because the post office really needs $50,000. Um, and he does this as a cover so that he can go back and retrieve so that he can get some divine intervention, get a message from the gods very publicly, get a message from the gods, um, sink to his knees, go, thank you, gods, and get on a horse and ride out to a field where he had previously buried whatever stash of gigantic pile of gold he had. Uh, that's never confirmed. Uh, it's only implied. <laughs> mm, <that's very laughs> maybe, maybe it was. <laughs> maybe it divine, was divine intervention. Financial intervention. <laughs> fair, fair Celestial point. bailout. <laughs> So at this point, he retrieves enough money, which he got through possible divine celestial intervention, yes, and he is able to actually put that money into rebuilding the post office. So it's not quite down and out, if one of you guys want to. Yeah, so from this point on, this is where uh, the uh, tension between the clacks and the post office really reaches ahead because Moist publicly challenges the clacks to essentially a race saying that they can get a letter to Genua before the clacks can and he does this kind of on a whim not really thinking it through and he starts to panic realizing that like this is a fool's uh, errand that it's never going to work but while he does that he discovers that there are the Discworld equivalent of hackers living on the post office roof. Um, basically, they have been finding ways to um, mess with the Clax Tower in a number of different ways. And after a bit of a lengthy conversation, he finds a way to shut down the Clax Tower before the race so that they can't actually send uh, any messages. And he is initially going to go through with this, but then he has a different idea and he tells them to do something else instead, which the hackers seem very, very against. It's not explained to us what it is at this time, but the hackers are very against it, saying it's morally wrong, but they go ahead and do it anyway. When the race begins, um, he makes to head towards Genua uh, on a coach and he passes a letter on to basically it's kind of a relay thing. So he is sending the letter through multiple mail coaches. And when he has done his part, he goes back to Unseen University, where the race is being monitored by uh, the Arch-Chancellor of the university. And when it's when the letter eventually gets to Genoa, uh, there is a colleague of the university receives it, I believe, isn't it? Yeah, he's, he's studying out in Genoa, um, and he's kind of the, the person at the end who's, yeah, he's supposed to, like, receive it and confirm, yeah. I suppose, who, who's given it to him first. Yeah, and he's completely isolated and going a bit mad, which I think we can all relate to right about now. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, when he opens and reads the letter, what does he discover, Colin? 
it, it turns out that well, at first it seems like like he's got a message. I, I believe it's like like he gets the message from the Clax, isn't it? Mm. Uh, so it seems that the Clax has won. Yes. But the message he gets uh, via those hackers, sort of um, managing to sort of uh, put, I suppose, put this circulate this message in the system rather than the the one they were supposed to do for the the race is um, supposedly from the voices of all the dead uh, Klaxmen who were working on the um, on the Klaxmen were killed off by... It's the Grand Trunk is the, the company that, that runs it, isn't it? Uh, and it's sort of been hinted at throughout the book. We got an earlier bit with, with um, you know, someone dying in mysterious circumstances. And then uh, Adora later talks about how her family initially were one of the you know, engineers behind the clacks and her brother died on it and she's sure there was foul play involved. So it, basically, and it's kind of, you get the impression throughout the book that this is sort of like an undercurrent of, not quite a conspiracy theory because there's obviously a lot more substance behind it, but that like, even though the clacks works, like a lot of people are sort of aware there's, you know, nefarious dealings and they've heard talks about this. So when this message comes up that supposedly from the de- the voices of the dead clacksmen talking about how the, you know, the Grand Trunks responsible for their deaths and the terrible working conditions and all the um, unsafe practices and, you know, other unethical things they've done, people are, you know, eating it up with a spoon because they've kind of suspected all along there's something nefarious about this. Uh, and because this is being uh, relayed then through this unseen university colleague in Genoa reading it into a kind of crystal ball and then everyone within the university is hearing it veterinary the wizards are there the grand trunk members board members sort of they lose the rag a bit and you know start panicking um, and basically the veterinary orders Vimes to uh, arrest all of them at that point uh, and then we're 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 pretty much at a close. Then they're they're arrested. Reacher guilt is given the same choice that uh, Moist was of like the the door into nowhere or um you know helping veterinary out and he, he takes the former option. Um and Moist is thinking about how now he no longer has Mister Pump watching over him, but he kind of feels he he can't really leave the uh, post office because he's he's sweet on the door at this point and he's kind of been won over by the. Uh, I suppose, but by the romance of the the idea he set up about the importance of the the post office. Hmm. Yeah, and that kind of closes out. I don't think there's anything else really. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of everything, isn't it? Unless yeah, you've that. That's everything. Okay, so I guess we should talk in general about first just uh, general reactions to the book, like um, to see how you felt about it. So. Uh, Column, you you haven't read this before. This is the first time you've read it. So how how did you come away? How do you feel coming away from it? Uh, this is a strange one for me to talk about because I, I finished it quite a, quite a while before we, we end up recording. So it's a little hazy, but I I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm predisposed to buy into that romance of the post office stuff because, as I said, it's sort of you know it's it's in my blood. <laughs> but um, but but I, I really like that that. Uh, the central conflict in it of this kind of like, you know, convenient but unethical option versus the like kind of, I suppose the traditional slightly impractical but perhaps more you know I don't know emotionally substantial 
option like, like that's a kind of conflict we're seeing play out every day in our own world via the internet you know whether it's like i mean here the kind of obvious parallel is emails versus physical posts but you see it all around whether it's people say buying books and goods on amazon versus going to local shops or you know whether it's uh i i don't know like like people um communicating obviously now we're all sort of communicating through computers given mm. the pandemic but general like whether it's people you know uh, communicating with their social circle more on social media or actually physically meeting up with them you know um yeah that that's that conflict of uh, i don't know convenience versus substance um is is a uh, something we're seeing played out a lot so it felt very um uh interesting um to me and i think too the um the business about like like the grand trunk uh, board members, like the idea of a kind of unscrupulous bunch of businessmen. It's hardly the most original cast of villains, you know, in in a book. But uh, uh, frankly, I think unscrupulous businessmen are always worth criticising. Um, and in within the context of this world, like we haven't really had this, you know, like the the kind of the sort of class divide Pratchett goes into and the. Uh, misdeeds of people in power have usually been based around a more kind of classical class structure of we've had like aristocrats like rust and you know the to a certain extent like i suppose that the heads of the guilds and the other watch books like and stuff like feet of clay when they're up to no good they're more of a, a merchant class but they're still a they're not quite old money but they're still more established whereas these these guys uh reacher guilt and his cronies are more sort of i suppose like Pluto craft one percenters in the vein of like you know unscrupulous tech people like Peter Thiel or, or Jeff Bezos or um you know uh, or even Donald Trump for that matter like the the Trump the, the fact that they have a tower called the was it the Grand Thump so that that kind of I suppose like that section of um haves uh, exploiting have nots is like a it's a particular subsection of it that Pratchett really hasn't touched on it in great detail in previous Discord books so it was kind of fresh to see it see it tackled here. I also quite like as you mentioned that the way that this is this just reminded me a little bit of in one of the first Cherry Pratchett novels where Two Flower explains the concept of insurance oh, to yeah. an inn owner and the inn owner immediately sets its inn on fire. It's like you introduce a new element into the Discworld into Ankhmore Pork and immediately it's like mm. how do I exploit this so you get white collar crime and fraud for the first time in this book because there's a new technology mm-hmm. that allows it. it it's quite I like that um, so I remember liking this when I read it uh, quite a while ago I have to admit coming back to it I was not as enamored reading it this time around um, I do uh, just to address like what you guys have both said, first of all, Rose, you're 100% right. The intro is brilliant. That thing with the spoon is one of the funniest things like in any Discworld book ever. Um, my issue with it is that is a moment in a book that has a couple of issues, which I'll get to in a second. Um, yeah, Colm, you, you brought up like a number of really interesting themes that, yes, haven't really been explored before. Um, to a certain extent, like, like you, as you said, that we have seen the class divide between, as you talked about, old money and, um, you know, the lower working classes. And I would argue that this isn't quite different enough to merit being the focus, the main the theme of this book. There's actually seems to be quite a few themes in this. 
And my main issue with it is that none of them are really explored in enough detail to make it worthwhile. So like, there's a lot of things going on, but like, I wasn't really sure there wasn't really enough meat on any of the one themes in the book for me to really get my teeth into. Like I came, kind of came away from it thinking like, what was this book trying to say at all? You know, um, I don't get me wrong. There are parts of it that I really, really like. I love the weird, even though like it doesn't really go anywhere in the end. I do really enjoy the moments where Moist is kind of getting this impression that the post office is haunted by the memories of the people who wrote the letters. And this is this really intriguing idea that um, basically fizzles out. It kind of makes sense narratively because once they start writing letters, they are kind of lowering the amount of voices and letters that are in the place. But it's kind of just ignored after that happens. And I feel like it, it does feed into the um, the message that they send through the clacks to ultimately resolve uh, the central conflict. But it's not really memorable or iconic enough for me to for it to really stick out. And there's a lot of just messy storytelling, I feel like. I mean, I kind of feel like you could sum this uh, book up with, so Moise von Lipwig is given a choice, either death or to reset up this post office. And then for 250 pages, he goes about setting up the post office and then there's a race at the end. I know this is something that you could say about a lot of Terry Pratchett books, but that really stood out for me in this one. So that was my take on it. Well, that was that was an issue I saw raised elsewhere that I didn't really feel, but at the same time I couldn't come up with a reason to refute it. It's one of the longer Discworld books, I think. Um, so I've got Unseen Academicals here, which I believe is the longest one. Mm-hmm. See, there's like you know, it's it's not a whole lot shorter. And I was thinking, you know, I, I've heard it criticised that like, what does this do to justify its length? Is there enough substance in there? And I was never bored by it. You know, I, I kind of, like, uh, really enjoyed it. And I think we'll get into it in a little more detail. I, I found a bit more depth and richness in some of those teams than, uh, for me at least, than, than, than you did. But um, when I heard that criticism, I thought, yeah, like, I, I find it hard. Like, I suppose plot-wise, maybe it is a bit thin. But at the same time, that all I can say is that wasn't really an issue for me. You know, like, it it's just rattles along nicely. Yeah, I will say that like I I also wasn't bored with it per se. It was more I came away with it feeling a little dissatisfied more than actually like um I found it a dull book. It's not a dull book by any means. I just kind of came away from it feeling like I'm not sure what it really achieved. I think what I like about it as well is um it spends a lot of time on characterization for Moist and you get a lot more of a view on veterinary mm-hmm, than you usually mm-hmm. do as well. So I think possibly he redirected some of the focus that might normally spend be spent on plot or on themes. And he put that into characters and giving you a read into the thinking in a lot more depth than you normally get with a Terry Pratchett novel. Not, normally they have either a lot more plot or maybe they are a bit more thematically focused, single theme focused. But in this one, um, maybe because I like the characters so much as well, I was always happy to get the extra comedy out of the interactions with Moist and Veterinary and the extra character insight into him trying to see how he can basically get Stanley on side, get Grote on side, see how he can manipulate the situation around him, but eventually kind of turns into genuine affection. Yeah, I think Moist is a really is a great strength of this book, because if you think of like, obviously he would go on to feature in, in other, and making money and in, in raising steam, 
but at this time, obviously, he's a, he's a one-off protagonist, and there's no... Uh, I think it would be another few years before making money came out, so there'd be no indication. You're not. You might read it for the first time, thinking, "I hope we see more of this guy." But for all you know, he's like William DeWard or Tepic or you know mm. someone like that. And I, I uh, those standalone um, Discworld books, you know, the ones that don't really fall neatly into a, a like the Watcher, which you know, Rincewind subseries. Uh, the, the protagonists can often be quite bland, um, and. I suppose their how well they work is drawn less from any particular qualities or quirks they have as a character, and more the situation they're in. So, say like we really liked uh, moving pictures, but Victor's quite bland. Mm. Uh, we really like pyramids. I particularly love pyramids. Tepic isn't really that interesting as a character, but he is put in such an interesting situation with central conflict of kind of you know modernity and tradition like where is his home is it Ankh-Morpork? Park? is it the jelly baby that that sort of makes up for it the kind of the the conflict fills out his character you know but if you kind of remove him from that situation like if if you imagine say him cropping up in a later book when he's just you know a roving assassin or whatever he's planning to do at the end it's hard to imagine him being particularly memorable in a way that you could have a cameo from a you know, a Vimes or a Granny Weatherwax in a book that's not about them that still would get across their character, you know, uh, vividly enough. Um, and Moist is like a delightful exception to this because, I mean, he's very much drawn from a, an archetype, a mold of the, the kind of the lovable con man. But I, I think he's just, he's very richly drawn. And the journey he goes on, both in rethinking his own principles and questioning himself and also in getting to grips with his situation i find is is really interesting it's sort of like that satisfaction it's similar to some of the the mystery driven watch books where you see vimes and to an extent the other watch members like figure out that what's going on bit by bit and there's a delight in kind of following them following along in that and seeing like each step in the process of like are they just hit on this new thing likewise here when you see mice kind of get to grips with how he's going to use the the press and then hit on the idea of the golems and you know so on and so forth like you kind of he like he, he isn't one of these characters that arrives fully formed and it, it weirdly for a book that the, the premise set up as as rose pointed out in that like um lovely first scene where he's just essentially essentially forced into you know taking over the post office he actually gets to exercise a lot of agency in how he goes about doing that and what he does within that um yeah that's always interesting because you know like that's i suppose what makes for interesting characters is essentially what they want and their struggles to you know uh reconcile that with the situation around them and by his scenario, he always is wanting something, whether it's kind of freedom or uh, the next step in which he can improve the post office's fortunes. And there's always something to conflict with that that forces him into new and interesting situations. Hmm. Um, can I ask you something, actually? Because I, I just re- realized now, when you said um, making money won't be released for a couple of years, but at the end of this book, um, our antagonist, uh, he's offered the, adjo- the choice of starting up the bank. So it sort of feels like the sequel of this is being set up even before this book has uh, ended already. So uh, do you think that was deliberate? Do you think uh, Terry Pratchett always plans to make Making Money with Moist von Lipwig as the main character? Or just a happy coincidence that just happens to work really well? 
Well, I'm just checking in now. Making Money came out in 2007. Uh, this was out in 2004. So it's a little sooner than I thought. I, I had it in my head. It was about five years. But um, I, I would imagine he probably did. Uh, but I I know. I'd, I'd, Rose, when you first read this, was it when when it had just come out? Or, or had Making Money come out, came out by the time you read it? No, this had come out, but Making Money hadn't come out Okay, yet. so when you got to the end, at that point, did you feel like, oh, yeah, we're definitely going to see more of Moist? Or... Um, did you think he kind of, I suppose, like sort of like how William DeWard features in the truth and you see him in other novels, but he's never the focus again? Did you kind of assume that Moist would take that path? Or? I didn't think it was being set up for a sequel necessarily. Um, but at the time when I was reading it, I think I, I finished it and I didn't necessarily feel like it was being set up for a sequel. I just thought it was a nice ending for Reacher because, of course, Veterinary would give him that exact same offer and, of course, Reacher wouldn't take it where Moist did. So I thought it was just an ending for Reach. Maybe, I don't know whether it was necessarily in Terry Pratchett's head that he was setting up a sequel for Moist or if it was just a way to close out Reacher in a way that would make the audience mm-hmm. really happy. I was definitely happy to see him fall in a big pit anyway. Certainly in light of making money, like there's a lot of, you know, the, the stuff with the, the stamps and people kind of using them as money here uh, throughout the book and, and the idea of um, those those bits where he talks about the like the the trunk, the 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 their sort of the nature of of their finances in a kind of being like a, you know, like like an investment company. So it's all based on futures and potentials and other people's money in other places. So he calls it. It's more about like the dream of the idea of money, the idea that somewhere there is the money. I really liked all of that stuff. And considering that this book came out in two thousand four four years before the uh, great economic crash of this century it's remarkably prescient in that regard and how it like okay it's not you know uh, the most like uh, original hitherto unfathomable thought to say this is a really weird and quite fragile system mm-hmm. that, that you know with which our economy works but nonetheless it's kind of remarkably prescient and hits home all the more when you hear him talking about how their how their money works and this idea of it just being this ephemeral dream that's kind of you know that people want to buy into even though there's no substance there Mm. um that kind of neatly sort of i suppose parallels how all of moist cons work where it's selling this idea of hope and this idea of something more whether that's something very mundane like oh yeah this horse is going to be really good believe you me or whether it's something much bigger like you know you're going to buy into this investment company into Clax that's going to be absolutely wonderful you're going to you know, get, get rich quick that um, I suppose like how people's hope can be can be used to fill holes uh, in systems where there's no there's no substance those those uh, holes are just filled with hope and then, you know that, that hope kind of dissipates as soon as, as the edifice comes crashing out and that's yeah uh, interesting and very prescient yeah, I did really enjoy. Um, so this is something that uh, annoyed me at first, but since we've been talking about it, I realized I actually quite like um, the moment where uh, Moist realizes that he was the one who got um, Adora Bell Deerheart fired because it was his mm-hmm. forged uh, bills that went through um, her. Is it a bank that she worked at? Yeah, I think it was. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so when he realized. I think it might be the equivalent of like a credit union or something, but mm. yeah. But when uh, when he realizes that and um, he starts feeling guilty, and he has this weird moment where 
he thinks to himself that, oh, I never killed anybody. That was like a very big rule of mine. But then he starts considering some of the things that Mr. Pump has been saying. And like, is it possible to kill someone a little bit? Like to make them like, bring them a little bit closer to death. And like this sense of like your moral values being questioned in such a way. And it's... It was. I found it really interesting in terms of like how he explores morality, because even at the very end, he still sort of feels like a con man, but he, I want to say, justifies it, which is an odd use, an odd word to use in this context. But he justifies the fact that he does good work on the basis that he's still doing a con in a way, because that's just kind of who he is. Like he's. <laughs> trying to make himself believe like I'm still conning people into believing that this is a doable thing but even though deep down he knows that he's actually like you know just being a civil servant and being like you know a positive like symbol of hope for people and that weirdly enough kind of gets to him gets under his skin in a little way so yeah it becomes this weird Ouroboros where it's like the fact that he's doing it for the public good allows him to reconcile the fact that he's still conning even after he's had this realization of the damage that can cause but the fact that he's conning and using his wits allows him to reconcile the fact of, that he's you know working this kind of like uh, <laughs> potentially very dull you know government job that he had always kicked back against so yeah it's yeah. like this odd self-sustaining sense of self he gets from it yeah i do think definitely definitely the main strength of this book even though i had an issue with the um the somewhat lack of story and themes it is the characters because moist is an exceptionally good character and even though like i know it might not necessarily be setting up a sequel with making money but because i knew that was coming it i mean it made me realize when that bit happens at the end i was like oh yeah i'm looking forward to seeing how this goes now making money because i haven't read that one in years either so yeah definitely some strong characterization there i really have to appreciate for that I think for me, the business with um the the bit when Mister Pump makes him realize how, you know, he has uh like his conning has hurt more people than he realizes was like crucial for my enjoyment of this book, because just like more of a personal thing, I'm, I'm sure uh, people's um, feelings on various genres and archetypes. Uh, you know, you have certain ones that kind of resound with you more and certain ones to just irk you regardless. And I've never been a huge fan of like, like, uh, you know, heist texts or like con man figures. Mm. Um, because for one, I can just never stop thinking of the collateral damage. You know, when you're seeing this idea of like, we're going to break into this like evil casino owner or evil banker and we're going to rob loads of his money. And you, like Mr. Pump says it here. And it, it, I always think when I watch these things, I'm like, this isn't going to ruin this person. They're just going to sack a load of their workers, mm. cut costs, and you'll run off with more money, you know? Uh, and it's sort of like, um, do you remember the, the episode of Blackadder, the tours where uh, there's like a highwayman that later turns out to be the girl Blackadder is trying to set the prince up with. Oh, yeah. But at the start of the episode, Baldrick is kind of, you know, fanboying over this highwayman called The Shadow. And he says, he's halfway to being Robin Hood. And Blackadder says, what do you mean? And he goes, well, he's got this stealing from the rich part, but he hasn't got around to giving it to the poor. <laughs> uh, and, and I kind of feel like that way in a lot of these, like, heist novels or a lot of kind of, like, so-called charming con men. And, you know, both in, like, genre sci-fi fancy stuff or just in kind of you know general caper films is that they usually end up that way you know where it's it's like they they're not stealing the money for any great cause so the text tries to justify it by just really 
if they're not going to give it to the poor, the text is going to make damn sure you know that the the rich are so evil that they kind of deserve this mm. to be stolen. Uh, which isn't something I'm necessarily opposed to, but it again, I'm just watching it thinking the end result of this is that you have more money and this rich person is still you know pissed off, but still rich and it's just going to sack a load of their staff. And and I kind of think there's this always like an undercurrent going through these like conman narratives of um, I don't know of cynicism just about the general like st- like human nature you know that everyone is a potential mark and to kind of justify them being a potential mark uh, you know to make us as the audience or as the readers not feel annoyed at the the con man con woman figure for doing this we're we're kind of sold a view of the world where everyone is either too greedy or too so so greedy or so stupid that they kind of deserve to be conned in some way Mm. Uh, and it just it's just so cynical and so like ultimately kind of self-deludingly selfish that it always gets my goat you know it's, it's one of these things where whatever otherwise charming films like Ocean's Eleven or something like that I just can't like I just see them and just click you're just a bunch of wankers you know um, but that's why I really like how this book kind of deconstructs that like I've got the quote here uh, from Mr. Pump where he says how do you how do you hear the golems in your head when they speak with capital letter at the start of every word I basically just hear him as death, like how I imagine that, de- like that sounds like, or even in the films, just like deep booming. So I just hear him monotone. Yeah, I'm kind of picturing something like like the Cyberman at Doctor Who or something, where it's this kind of ominous monotone. Uh, but he, he says, "I won't attempt that because uh, I don't have a voice for an ominous monotone." You have stolen, embezzled, defrauded, and swindled without discrimination, Mister Lipvig. You have ruined businesses and destroyed jobs. When banks fail, it is seldom bankers who starve. And boy, does that one resonate in light of the financial crash. Your actions have taken money from those who have little enough to begin with. In a myriad small ways, you have hastened the debts of many. You do not know them. You do not see them bleed. But you have snatched bread from their mouths and tore clothes from their backs. For sport, Mr. Lipvig. For sport. For the joy of the game. Uh, And like that speech and Moist sort of slowly coming to terms with that I like too that like initially he's, it, it clearly shakes somebody's kind of in denial and his um, processing of this this uh, assessment of, of the morality of what he does takes a while for him to sink in and he he wrestles with it a bit but you know he eventually comes comes around to it Um I like that. That for me is just so was so crucial for this. Not just annoying me as a, you know, a kind of charming con man caper because it, it added more moral substance to it, um, and even the fact that Moist kind of buying into the the stuff about the emotional value and the kind of communal value of the the post office and the service, uh, undercuts that notion of that like cynical view of, of humanity where everyone's a potential mark because they're just stupid or greedy like the fact that he sees some sort of you know greater good or intangible emotional value that just bypasses financial wealth or utilitarian gain um like that's that's what makes this whole thing work for me mm. yeah i know what you mean um there's a great bit near the start where he's talking about how he goes about conning people and how the big secret to it is make them make the mark believe that they're conning you rather than the other way around. And this kind of speaks into what you were saying about how, like, you know, certain people like they're just 
greedy and like you know the human nature is just like trying to take advantage of like people in this way and like how Terry Pratchett is making like some kind of uh, commentary on that but it made me start thinking like just again while we're talking now how um, so Moist view on this is basically make the person believe that they're conning you rather like than the other way around or like you know just being uh, objective and plain about and that made me think I wonder is that what Veterinary did with this whole thing that like uh, Moist is like try thinks he's conning Veterinary by going about things in his own way or trying to get out of it maybe I'm wrong I don't know I mean Moist obviously thinks he's conning Veterinary at the start when he tries to escape mm. but after he realizes he can't he seems to escape is at the back of his head but he he never seems to pursue it seriously at all yeah um i think the real turning point actually is when he um uses the funds that he had from before to actually puts that into the post office that's like a huge turning point for moist when you realize that like he's you you could take a step back and say that's the moment when he becomes like an honest joe of sorts who still has these abilities that he can use but like ultimately they're all pretty much for good like and uh for the most part, the end seems to justify the means. I found it quite interesting that um, so many people objected to his use of like uh, the dead and like what their words uh, in order to like right the wrongs of like Reacher, like trying to bring him to justice. And like so many people seem so against that. And uh, just out of curiosity, as a moral choice right there, like, do you feel like there's that's like particularly problematic or what do you guys think? Well, for me, uh, not at all. For me, I think that everything that he said, he might have used a particular name and might have repositioned who was saying it, which, yeah, I I can kind of see where they're coming from with that argument. But, you know, in the novel, Pratchett talks about it and the characters talk about it like, if I knew you were going to do that, I would have punched you. I think Adora says something along those lines. Um, It's positioned like it's problematic, but for me, I never had an issue because it was all true. Yeah, I was the same. Like, I didn't really find it as much as an issue. I found it interesting that so many people did in the novel. Um, but maybe it's just, like, a very mm-hmm. sentimental, emotional thing, like, because of their connection with the people who died. So... Yeah, there is one other thing, though. Um, words being magic mm. is a big theme in the novel. So maybe if you bring that into the equation, then maybe it becomes a little bit more problematic. Like, the words speak, the words last, the words are their own practically living thing in terms of the post office they speak to moist and they're they're in every crevice of the building maybe if you think about the words being magic then it becomes more problematic but for me it Hmm. never was i think the question of speaking for the dead is something that i mean it's i I suppose just in general it's a central moral quandary for anyone caught up with any kind of cause you know and that like on the one hand you have no right to do it these people are dead and you can't presume what they would have wanted i mean we see this obviously like very speciously and ludicrously applied where like like there's elements of the british tabloid press that seem obsessed with the idea of what like princess diana would have thought about brexit even though like she died you know mm. like that's like 20 years before it happened and you know that like really ludicrous aspect of kind of you know or you, you see like like big figures from many nations history used in this way where it's like if George Orwell were around today or if you know like Lincoln were around today or like if the men of 1916 were around today like what would they say about this it's like you probably don't know you shouldn't be talking about what they'd say you know it it doesn't really matter but you're but you're using their uh the memory of them to add substance to essentially what you want to say and and there is I suppose a um 
you know that's uh, immoral I suppose like you know, like it's and it, it's kind of dishonest um but at the same token you kind of have to do it if say like um I was thinking uh you know the, the stardust um disaster oh the, the yeah. nightclub that, yeah, that yeah, burned yeah. down yeah that was yeah. um like my my mom used to go to that uh when because it was near where, where uh, she grew up um and she knew some of the people who had, had done it so so it's always been very, you know, interesting. Recently, the journal that I this probably going over the heads of of all non Irish listeners, but basically it was it was a nightclub that burnt down uh, on Valentine's Day, and I can't remember it was, it was some stage in, in the eighties. But it, it basically came that the the owner, uh, or that the owners, uh, there was you know it was hugely unsafe in terms of the emergency exits and things like that, and this contributed enormously to the uh, to the death toll. But they've never, uh, I, I don't think the the people involved have ever been fully prosecuted for it so obviously you have say an event like that or like something like say the hillsborough disaster in um in the uk where to campaign for justice for the dead you then necessarily have to presume some level of speaking for them you know you mm. you have to say like like all the people who are hurt by this are, are dead well i suppose they're not and that they leave behind loved ones who are themselves hurt in terms of grief but in any case you kind of have to take up that baton as it were so like that sort of a you know it's always something we it's it's never quite cut and dry. Mm. I think the way in which Moist does it here and, and less in kind of taking up the baton of Robert Deerhart and the others and saying you know like they deserve justice I'm doing this for them and more in kind of putting words in their mouth like mm. by like literally claiming that it's coming from them. That's the part that like uh, you know Adora's thinking I, I would have punched you about. And I, I do think it is interesting because it's obviously, it's hugely effective and it's kind of founded on that idea of Moist being like a con man who, by the end of the book, can only sustain himself being a con man by telling himself he's doing it for the, the greater good, uh, but whose greater good do-gooding is itself fueled by him being a con man. So he's using these techniques that like, you know, you have that moment earlier when Richard Gilt is interviewed in the um, the Ankhmore Park Times, and he's using this really specious language to kind of avoid any of the blame. So, like, Moist is kind of fighting him at his own game there with his use of language. Uh, and it's it sort of like, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, when you see these really emotive, sensationalist and, and sort of, uh, you know, um, very kind of leading tabloid headlines. And like usually, quite often you'll think, "Oh, like that's rubbish," or "I can't believe they're trying to convince people about this." Occasionally, you'll see them for a cause you agree with. Like I remember, mm. I, I think it was after one of the, the mass shootings in America, and there was, you know, you had all these uh, uh, congressmen and senators who were, uh, you know, in, in the pocket of the NRA and and uh, other kind of interests, like using stuff like platitudes and ideas of thoughts and prayers to kind of distract from the drive to legislate in any way to prevent this. And there was some, I think it's like, was it like the, uh, like the daily news in New York or, or some, some uh, American tabloid was like, just like blasting them on the front cover. It was like, you know, uh, like you can't hide behind prayers now and stuff, <laughs> and stuff like that. And I, I was just thinking, this is so sensationalist, but it's really satisfying to read it. Cause I'm like, yeah, exactly like, you know, <laughs> like but but i'm also like i i could never i mean whatever it's not like i'm some big public figure and arguing about this but if i was i could never let myself resort to those kind of like ultra like you know emotionally manipulative sort of rhetoric to you know to kind of win people over on the issue but when i see someone else doing it for something i believe in it's, it's sort of it's satisfying but kind of conflicting as well because you're like 
oh, that's, you know, that's not good journalism. That's not, uh, you know, uh, it is kind of manipulative, but yeah, they're right. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe this will get something done. So there's a touch of that here, I think, where the idea of him literally putting words into the mouths of, of dead people and uh, is something that's, you know, immoral and emotionally manipulative. But because it's for this greater good, you, you kind of you swallow it and, and, and go along. And and I think it's, it's interesting because like he's the only of the squirrel like if you think this and Ang Morpork book veterinary is involved Vimes is involved you know tangentially neither of them could have done this you know mm. or would have done this it's very much like only Moist would solve the situation this way mm. actually just um, a very quick note on just what you were saying about the tabloid newspapers I had that exact same thought recently when I was watching um, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver I don't know if you guys watch that very often Yes. I know of it. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's weird because just what you were describing there is exactly what I go through. It's like because John Oliver used a lot a lot of very like extreme language. Now he's very hard left, and I do agree with like the vast majority of his views. Uh, but like you said, like I find myself watching and thinking like this is very manipulative in the way that you're doing this. Like he's making like everyone on the heart like like alt-right and just like conservative parties seem very very like ridiculous and stupid and on the one hand i'm like this doesn't really feel right this is kind of like playing into the same kind of mannerisms that a lot of extremists on the conservative side tend to do and then i found myself thinking yeah but like if they do it all the time like surely the people on the left are justified in occasionally doing that and having like a logical objective state of mind like they can watch people who are leftists and say Yes, you know, you're allowed to have your bit of fun and have this, like, you know, manic screaming thing, or not manic screaming thing, but, like, um, to have use this sensational language to try to bring people over to your view because it's whatever works. It's what you need to do sometimes to get people on your side. And, like, if you're just going for plain objective uh, facts, a lot of people who, like, you know, maybe don't have very large attention spans or just kind of, like, going for the appealing argument probably will just lean over to the sensationalist conservative side as opposed to a sensationalist left side, yeah, liberal side, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that notion of, like, he who fights monsters becomes a monster, you know, you look into the abyss and the abyss looks back. Yeah. You, you see it play out in a lot of uh, fiction, but often kind of in a... Uh, where the stakes are, are involved around, um, you know, violence and fighting in a way, where it's sort of, I suppose, like like conflicts you'll occasionally see played out about, like, you know, World War Two. Um, like and you know you're fighting against these evil Axis powers and how far do you go to fight them or or kind of on a more um, uh, street level stuff like like something like uh, say in the Dark Knight where at the end he uses these like surveillance techniques that uh, you know are completely unethical to fight against the Joker and the film kind of like I suppose makes that a bit ambiguous with uh, what's his name Morgan Freeman's character resigning because of it. Uh, but there's this sort of general sense of like the film is basically saying, well, this is what you need to do. You know, like you're you're kind of walking the thin line of uh, becoming just as bad as the person you fight, but you still need to sink to their level to an extent, um, so long as you don't totally go down there. And it's just interesting to see it played out here in more in terms of like words and language and rhetoric and communication techniques rather than violence. You know, that idea of like when you're using these emotionally emotionally manipulative uh, sort of like sensationalist techniques um, you are walking that thin line where like how how far away from, from reach or guilt are you and like Moist is often kind of 
I find his his relationship to guilt is quite interesting, given that they don't really have many direct interactions. And there's that bit when they meet in a restaurant, and then I think like just before the race, they they uh, like exchange a few words. But Moist is sort of seeing the fact that when he sees him, he thinks a few months ago, I would have thought like this guy is a master at my craft. He's just like me, but he's much better at it. But then you know, as he as he's kind of grown, he has a certain amount of I suppose disgust and and wariness over what guilt is doing. Uh, but at the same time, he's got to beat him at his own game to an extent. And how does he do that without becoming just like him, given that he sort of realises he was on the path to becoming just like him up until he got caught by veterinary? Yeah, actually, just on the note of uh, Reacher Guilt there, this I felt like this uh, fell into the same trap many, many Terry Pratchett books do, where it sensationalises the villain to make it seem like, you know, almost unopposable. And then kind of like railroads him at the very end all over again, like uh, so many times before. Like there's that moment where um, he sees him for the first time and realizes, oh my God, he's just like a master of his craft. Like I would be like, I'd love to just be like a pupil for this guy. But then it feels like very, very shortly afterwards, he's like, you know, saying things to like tease, like tease a reacher into saying things like on an emotional level. And it's like, oh, he lost a bit there. I can see panic in his eyes and like, Wow, you fell so quickly there. Um, did you get that at all, or do you guys? What What do you think, Rose? What do you think of guilt as a villain? I like that they set him up as a literal pirate. Um, I really like guilt. Um, I see your point there, because you would think that the way they set him up originally, that he would never crack, that his facade is just excellent, that he is this master, um, and he can face down veterinary, but he loses it with moist. I suppose the only thing I'll say is that it happens gradually over the course of the novel and he thinks he's won against Moist when the post office burns down and then Moist comes back and then challenges into this race and then he starts to think, just for a split second, could he win? But there's no way Moist could win the race. But for a split second he thinks, could he? And you can kind of understand it creeping in slowly to the point where I don't think he ever really slips up either. He says one or two sentences that he probably shouldn't say out loud, but he never really incriminates himself. He never really makes that kind of mistake. He just lets it get under his skin a little bit more than it really should. I guess my main issue with it is um, the way uh, Moist talks talks him up initially. There's never really a point where it seems like Reacher Guilt like just has him like in his palm. Like says, I, I I have you now. There's nothing you can do. Like Moist is always just kind of a case of like, oh, he's done this such a thing now. Well, what can I do? Like the only time it's even close to that is when um, Reacher Guilt releases that statement and the language he uses is like very, very finely crafted. And this comes back again to what we were saying before about the use of language and like how it brings people around to people's point of views. But, you know, it honestly feels like Moist bounces back to that so quickly. Like, there's never a sense, I feel like, that he's really um, met his match with Reacher Guilt, other than the initial moment. And then we're just being told he's met his match. Uh, this, is, this isn't something, like, I'm accusing this book specifically of. It's something that we've discussed many times before with previous villains. Like, so many of Pratchett's villains, like, they when they're introduced, they're very, very impressive but by the time we're getting to the end of the book, it's always a case of like, oh, and like, here is your foil. And they're kind of just like a gibbering wreck. Like, I think the most profound example of that was um, uh, Granny Weatherwax's sister, 
who is like uh, in Witches Abroad, she's displayed as this, you know, more than a match for Granny Weatherwax. Like, you know, she's younger, stronger, better. And then when we see her, she's just this like wild cackling hag who just like, you know, breaks down in front of Granny Weatherwax. So this obviously isn't as bad, but um, I feel like it does somewhat fall into the trap. That's just me. That's my personal opinion on that one. Yeah, I, I, I think the... Yeah. Um like mice kind of has to be keep moving because the, the uh, scales are weighed against them uh, anyway with like not you know not only guilt as a kind of formidable opponent but also the fact that like the clacks have much more resources and so much more on their side that um, I suppose there's very little room to see mice completely defeated or seemingly completely defeated at any stage that doesn't dig him into a hole too deep that the book can't dig out of because he begins in a deep hole having to uh you know raise up this like declining stagnant uh institution hmm. um i i've read a lot of people comparing reacher guilt to like uh john galt and like um iron rand uh protagonists i haven't read any iron rand i i like i know of objectivist philosophy that she espouses in the books and I can see how he plays into that with kind of ultra privatization and uh, the will uh, and rights of the individual um, superseding any kind of uh, responsibilities to the wider community but the parallels I got with him were it was with um, Jay Gatsby in The Great Gatsby he was kind of like an evil Jay Gatsby with the kind of notion of him coming out of nowhere into high society and being really flamboyant and throwing these big parties that everyone is wowed by and everyone's sort of like a little wary of him because they don't know exactly where he came from and his his manipulation of language uh, as well just seemed very Gatsby-esque um, so like I like that side of him uh, like the idea of just like a, like an evil Jay Gatsby as the, uh, as, as the villain was um, yeah something that tickled me mm. I do think um, he's portrayed very very well when he's dealing with like the board of directors behind the Clax Tower I think those are the strongest moments for Gil he's like because well, he's really he manipulates them so very well so though, in my opinion those were like definitely the strongest way the strongest um, moments for him um, there's a lot of like I, I know I said that like I wasn't quite as fond as this book as you guys but there's a lot of little, like, very small character moments that, like, don't even feed that much into the central themes that I really like. One of my favorite bits, um, because we're talking about language, I'd be interested to hear your uh, views on it, is um, Groat's uh, little turns of phrase that don't seem to mean anything at all, but he attributes meaning to them. So there's that moment where, what was it, he says, um, yeah, he's, he refers to um, his toupee as, like, it's not prunes, and uh, he's got this whole reasoning for why prunes means toupee. And it's just, you know, I, I don't know like where it comes from. It's just interesting that like... It, it's kind of like a, a Cockney rhyming, rhyming slang, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit or, like... Yes, except it doesn't Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's, I was, there's another one that he says, uh, a cup and plate in the head, which I think means mad, but I'm not certain. <laughs> um, and... Oh, so there's something he says like, uh, oh yeah, he was gnats of, he, he refers to gnats, which I think means died of. So like he was gnats of terror or gnats of uh, vertigo. I can't remember the exact content. Let me see if I can find it here. It's page 47. Let's see if I can find it. Yeah, I think Grote is fascinating though. Um, I think 
they mentioned that as a footnote as it being a rhyming slang that doesn't rhyme which I really <laughs> yeah. enjoy um, but then my favourite growth moment is actually when he winds up in the hospital and the doctor is explaining to Moist that um, yeah he is unexpectedly unreasonably <laughs> healthy like how is he so healthy the doctors can't go near him he's nigh on indestructible and Moist like oh yeah that'll be the sulphite he walks around with in his <laughs> shoes oh yeah he eats this for breakfast oh yeah he, like all of the insane things he does have somehow made him invincible <laughs> yeah i love that um and the fact that he yeah. wears a toupee as well like i found i was trying to think of like parallels between him and uh, moist at that point so like most moist always used to go out with like you know um fake mustaches or like general disguises and i was like i wonder like what this has to say about growth in general like um i couldn't really think of anything i don't know if, if you guys I think he sort of parallels the post office in a weird way at this point, where he's this old man in decline. This kind of fig leaf of, uh, I don't know, like like aesthetic, you know, value or um, uh, kind of like like supposed grandeur with his unusually youthful looking head of hair uh, in the same way that the post office is this grand old building that is just completely uh, crumbling and, you know, not. Uh, uh, operational law thinking about it, a lot of the language is something that plays all the way through it like you've got what's what's her name miss um the, the woman who becomes the post oh, it's, it's miss. a long one it's like macalariat anyway you have her with her re, like kind of policing language with you know the bit when she's talking about like <laughs> swear words and it's like the p word the s word and you're, you're racking your brains thinking what could she possibly be referring to like what <laughs> word has she censored there that you know that uh clearly wouldn't be considered a curse uh or by, by any of us but but is by her um he had a way in which she kind of polices language and i find um I'm supposed to get into her uh adora bell um her like her relationship to language quite interesting that that part when when moist talks about calling mr pump him rather than uh or is it dem rather than it and even though she's this like golem rights activist she's sort of wary of this like as a like she has that kind of hard-bitten activist suspicion of sort of limp-wristed liberal uh pat yourself on the back things like you know like oh yeah i'm doing wonderful for this oppressed group because i you know take this tiny step that isn't uh you know isn't doesn't require any effort or hardship on my part whatsoever so she you know, i think she kind of when moist says that she kind of sort of suspects him as being this you know uh basically this sort of do nothing do good or who's going to kind of use terms like that but not actually do anything to further the, the ply, uh, you know, fight against the plight of golems. Um, in a way that kind of re- like resounds with me. You see it like with a lot of arguments now because, like, uh, obviously, like language is inherently bound up with power and with the struggles of oppressed groups. But at the same time, it's kind of easy to get lost in the weeds of it and just be focusing on some like minor linguistic argument over you know a, a word that should should it be taboo should it not be taboo and it's like well actually you know group x y or z has much more pressing concerns done this and if you want to you know fight their corner or help them out don't waste your time you know uh doing this and uh like a very suspicious of the term virtue signaling because I just think it's thrown around to kind of anyone and um, to discredit like a, like any strong stance they take on any issue. But I suppose there is that suspicion sometimes when you see people arguing over these minor linguistic things where you just think, 
well, it's easy to do this. Like, what well, you know, do something of substance to help out. Likewise, the part in the pub I found really fascinating when when they yeah, meet up. Yeah. To, is it the drum they're in? They're, they're, um, and a fella comes on to her, and he, she kind of threatens to basically <laughs> basically castrate him with her eye. You know? uh, yeah, yeah. Or no, it's not. It, yeah, no, it is, isn't it? She's got a point to that. Is yeah. Uh, but Moist is sort of non plus. Like he doesn't didn't see anything. I suppose like worthy of um mm. of aggression in what your man was saying. But she does, and it's uh, and again, it's it's something that feels very prescient in light of something like Me Too, where you have like women being harassed in the workplace or elsewhere in these ways that like, okay, in some cases you know amount to. Uh, like uh, physical um, harassment that is being covered up in some way, but in other ways are these very subtle kind of manners that people are choosing on some level not to see, you know, like like um, whether it's in pubs or in workplaces, people coming up and making these sort of suggestive, uh, demeaning comments, but they're comments that are kind of couched in seemingly everyday language so that when a woman does react to, you know, to them, she then is sort of criticised as like, oh, what are you doing? You're being so defensive. He was just being nice you can kind of man not to make a compliment these days and i i just found it fascinating because mm. it isn't really pursued but you have that moment where like i'm reading the book thinking oh jeez, yeah this uh poor eladora having to put up with this like these drunken dopes coming up to her in, in pubs but i'm also thinking i've definitely been like moist in the past and just been like i don't see what the big deal is he was just saying this you know um and yeah so like it's that subtleties of language where experience has taught her to realize what you know uh what this fella really means in coming up to her and moist is just completely yeah i i, uh, I was really impressed by that bit and a little disappointed that it wasn't explored a little bit further I th- something i feel that we're picking up on uh, especially over the last like handful of like novels that we've read is terry pratchett is getting better and better like as he progresses in how he writes female characters they're still there's still problems like occasionally, but there's definitely improvements like from the early days where like they were somewhat objectified. Um, they were basically just like, you know, any, any attractive woman just had to be this like overpowered one dimensional character, you know, who is like, like I'm thinking of um, Cohen's daughter in particular. I think she's in sorcery. Uh yeah, Cohen, like she's just like this Bonina. very bland, nothing kind of character. But as we get further and further, they've had more and more agency. Um, still not like, you know, not quite up to like the satisfying degree, but definitely better. Um, have you guys found that a little bit or am I talking I'm about my sure. um, I'm not sure whether it's um, something that gets better chronologically. I'd have to have a look through the books. But um, I know there's definitely a lot of female characters that do seem kind of flat. And then mm. sometimes you get, let's say, an Angua or, mm. you know, the witch is yeah. obviously, yeah, the icon. So I, I don't know, it probably is chronological, but um, I would have to actually look at the list of books to make sure. It's the problem that I always find is it comes off particularly in the one-off books. Uh, so like when you have like something like The Truth or um, let's say something which at the moment this is a one-off because we haven't read Making Money. But there tends to be like a love interest character introduced almost just for the sake of a love interest. And they have very little to do other than just like be there as a motivation for the main character. Um, now sometimes, don't get me wrong, like with the likes of Sakurissa, she does like... Uh, influence how the story plays out she does have things to do but it just never feels like her primary role which is a bit unfortunate 
I think early on there is a fair few characters who there's a sort of have your cake and eat it too attitude, um, but more so young women like like from early on he seems to have a great hold on people like Granny and, and Nanny, um, and perhaps I, I think like in I suppose like conventionally unattractive young women like McGrath I, I think is a really well written character, but um, like when it's conventionally attractive women he sort of does this thing early on you see it with Conina with uh, Tracy in Pyramids, there's probably a couple of others I'm, I'm not thinking of, where he sort of pokes fun at the tropes that are usually around these kind of alluring, uh, you know, drop-dead gorgeous characters in fancy literature, but he's still using those tropes, even when he's poking fun at them, and he's kind of, he's poking fun at, like, uh, like, you know, men around being, you know, being ridiculously incapable of kind of dealing with the, the, these, like, very attractive women, and maybe the women being kind of, like, uh, either oblivious to it, or just sort of, like, um, you know, been there, uh, been there, seen that, kind of tired of it, but it still isn't progressing past those, I suppose, those kind of uh, moulds for, like, those archetypes for, for uh, character interactions, you know, um, like it's kind of reached this initial stage of self-awareness and pointing those out, but doesn't go beyond that to something different. And I think it does here. Um, really, uh, I suppose getting into um, Adora as a character, I really like her, and I really like Moist, but I think their relationship is mm. like the least convincing part of either of them. Uh, and I'll be curious to see whether it kind of it gets more substance in in the other books with them. Um, it. it feels almost more necessary like a bit of a plot crutch where it's like he needs Moist to you know in his journey of becoming more invested in what he's doing in the post office and settling down in Agmore Park rather than constantly being on the run conning people he needs to kind of you know hook him in as it goes on uh, and you see that playing out in small ways when he's talking to Groat about like how the post office used to run and so on but I suppose giving him a, a girly fancy is mm. like an easier, more immediate way of doing that. Um, and, and I kind of get like, I get in principle the idea of Moist, the ultimate con man who is deliberately substanceless for so long, uh, being attracted to a person who just completely sees through all that and is nothing but substance, like no bullshit. She's, you know, like just like has no room for pleasantries, for, for small talk um, and for, for things like that. And and him at this time in his life, like I, I love those um, initial worries he has of feeling naked when he isn't going around without a disguise on. And, and almost like, I suppose, being more susceptible to falling in love or big emotional changes while he's feeling that way, you know, like that, um, seeing horror. But yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I just felt like I get all those ideas in principle, but in practice, they, they kind of played out sort of cliche to me. But despite that, I, I really like both of them mm. individually as characters. We haven't talked a whole lot about her. What did you guys think of her? Yeah, very similar to yourself. I really like her as a character, but her personality doesn't lend itself well to a love interest whatsoever, even though like narratively it w it should work well, but I didn't really get the chemistry like they had great chemistry as friends and that would have worked brilliantly like if they had just been like even if it was a case of he fancies her and she shoots him down but they stay like you know friends and companions I think that would have been really really good and really interesting but it's just kind of like very very limply and uh, half-heartedly uh, implied that oh, there's still a kind of romance going on and it's kind of off to the sidelines because, 
you know, Moist has to deal with this whole thing with the post office, but it's still kind of there. And um, I didn't particularly buy it. Um, yeah, I also feel like, I'm not sure how, how to say this, but I feel like uh, Miss Dearheart got too much focus, but not enough um no that's not true like she's giving a lot given a lot of time on the page but i feel like her personality isn't explored enough does that make sense like i i I feel like there was a lot more to her that wasn't explored right even though like she is in quite a large portion of the book yeah i think that's fair um i think Mm -hmm. that's fair to say because she has basically pratchett set her up with a couple of key characteristics um, she is a very angry woman. She hmm. doesn't put up with bullshit. Bad stuff has happened to her. Um, you know, and those, he set her up with her characteristics and then after that she is quite often used as a plot device. Hmm. Like um, the, what is almost a deus ex machina at the end where um, Moist has set himself this unwinnable challenge and it completely is unwinnable except for the guys on the roof and this plan he comes up with and it all kind of falls into place because of her and the guys on the on the roof it all comes together very neatly and that's the only thing that lets him win Mm. so she serves a purpose you know and she is a great character but once he sets her up with the characteristics that are going to be the main of her it doesn't really go much further than that she doesn't really get developed the same way that moist does which is a shame in itself Um, i can't remember really how much more she gets developed in the sequels. But I actually, I, I can't even remember if she's in the sequels, but I presume she is. <laughs> she is. It, well, and I suppose in a way that we see Moist change, kind of uh, question his kind of con man ways and, um, you know, uh, open himself up to putting down roots and egg more pork and seeing the value and the, the things he's doing. We don't see any similar change in, in uh, Adora. You're right, Rosa. Like she kind of stays wishes i don't know what that change would be like maybe learning to trust more maybe you kind of see that open i mean she does in the sense that she ends up sort of trusting moist but you don't i don't know there isn't a sense of it playing out as a kind of personal journey for her in the way that it does for him uh i i do like like i like the even though she is used plot wise a, a lot i kind of think the character fits in well enough that it rarely feels contrived like the idea of when he goes to her to ask for help for the race it makes so much sense because it's like she's set up as the the, you know uh, no bullshit person who's the only one who like he'll actually be able to have a normal conversation with because at that stage everyone has bought into his hype so much that they like they wouldn't be able to fathom that Mm -hmm. he's not going to win the race you know the bits when he's talking about like to Groat about the bookies and the odds they're offering and I think he tries to tell Groat like basically he's not going to win and Groat just like can't process he yeah. thinks he's joking or something you know um, yeah they all like everyone's talking their nose knowingly so it makes so much sense that like she is this kind of one person he can confide in there who'll you know be able to see the, the substance and the truth of it yeah it's it's just it progressing to a romantic thing I suppose that um, yeah not not that like there's uh, I'm not big against the idea of in, in principle. I just think, I know it would have been nice if, say, like in in, in I maybe misremember this, but I feel like in the truth with William and Satyrissa, you like by the end of the book they haven't really got together romantically. They've just kind of arrived at a place where that mm. could happen, 
and then you know that that's where it ends um and i i i not entirely sure but i believe it's kind of hinted at or, or said that they are in a relationship or married in, in later books when they pop up as side characters but i i, I think this might have been a nicer tra- trajectory you know where it's kind of they go from being uh you know friendly with a bit of romantic tension to like just seeing that begin to open up at the end you know like um rather than it being a more sort of i don't know han solo and princess leia con man and uh you know uh sharp woman um relationship art uh, yeah i remember with the truth um what i particularly liked about that relationship at the end was more than anything else symbolically you can see that they both saw each other as equals because they have that story where like the barrel crashes into a cart and you know it's just before that happens there's kind of this underlying romantic tension happening you're kind of thinking oh what's going to happen here but then this gets put completely to the wayside in a way but then you just see how they talk you know like while they're on the job says okay you interview those guys and i'll go see what happened with the cars no you do that because i'm better at this yeah yeah and they're talking to each other completely like they're equals and that in itself felt so very satisfying at the end of the truth um like yeah it's not romantically set in the page what happens, but you can see the way they treat each other. It's like the, the way you two developed worked out very, very nicely. Um, if you guys don't mind, I'd like to talk about my favorite part of this book at this point now, which is when Moist goes to the pin shop. And <laughs> so when uh, one thing, there's a kind of a theme in here of just like the idea of collectors and you know hobbyists and that sort of thing explored very very well through the way um the advent of postal stamps and how uh stanley basically becomes obsessed with collecting stamps but i love the bit where he goes into the pin shop to kind of investigate pins and he sees all these like variety of specialist pin magazines and one of my favorite being backdoor pins which i thought was hilarious when i read about that (laughs) but there's just a there's a quote in it that i just love so much when they're uh both moist and the owner of the shop dave are talking about total pins the magazine that stanley writes and uh moist is looking for a copy of it and he says what was it (laughs) so he says uh to be fair they're generally holding pins so then it's total pins for you is it uh he added as if giving a fool one last chance to repent of his folly yes what's wrong with it oh nothing nothing at all uh it's just that the editor is a bit a bit a bit what well, we think he's a bit weird about pins, to tell you the truth. <laughs> and then you're just looking around the shops and all these pin fanciers <laughs> everywhere. And you're like, really? Yeah. And it's just like, it's really interesting. It's like, I found myself thinking of like, um, you know, anime and gaming conventions and stuff going in there. And like, I've, I've gone to those before. And <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, like, I'm sure from an outsider coming into this, they're like, what is wrong with all these people dressing up like in cosplay? If you're like not introduced to that, um, you know, that world, if you're like completely new to it, you're like, what the hell is going on? But then when you go in, it is completely natural to like be chatting to some people, but then you'd be chatting to say a friend of a friend and they might come across as a bit strange for like whatever way. It's like, wow, you're really into this particular subgenre. It's like, that's very odd, you know? (laughs) Uh, What did you guys think of that bit? Also really funny. Um, there's a lot of scenes that made me really, really laugh in this book. <laughs> that was one of them. 
Yeah, I, I actually, I, I thought it was really funny, but I think it ties in nicely to some of the underlying themes about the uh, how we as a society and as individuals invest in things that have no, you know, I suppose no substance or no like inherent value. It, like we see that play out in a big way with how the, the trunk, you know, um, handles finance. Uh, and we see it play out with how moist kind of, even though the, the post office is less convenient on the trunk, he kind of, uh, appeals to people's sense of like emotional intangible value and things you know uh, on why they should use the post office rather than than using the clacks and then we see it here with the idea of like all these people are fascinated with pins even though there's like no value in them and mo as you said like most outsiders wouldn't be able to tell the difference or wouldn't see any point in it and we see stanley then transfer over to stamps uh, and then we see how people are treating stamps as money, which is showing the inherent kind of like how money itself is just this fantasy we all choose to invest our emotions in, in the same way we do the post office or pins or um, or stamps. Like it, it, it all it hangs together neatly and without without attention having to be directly drawn to it. You know, there's no bit where Moise is like, ah, Stanley and his pins are a lot like how people <laughs> treat finance in Angmorpork. You know, it's just, it's there. Under yeah, and it's interesting how, like, I, I particularly like the moment where um, Moise points out that there's a handful of stamps that have, like, flaws on them. And Stanley says, like, oh, yeah, these are actually worth more. It's like, why? They're flawed. It's like, oh, people, like, just saying they're worth more because they're one of a kind. And it's just... It's interesting how, aside from the fact that people like attributing value to like a concept, they can equally like attribute additional value. Like, and this is something that like happens on a personal level. Like, someone thinks to themselves, "I think this is worth more," so like I will like you know att um, attribute more value onto this thing that doesn't really work within any kind of set of rules except for their own, which in itself is kind of interesting. Uh -huh. And quite similarly, then there's one line that there is somewhere in the book that goes, oh, yeah, well, a lot of people are sending letters to themselves because they want to keep the stamps because they think a stamp has more value once it's fulfilled its purpose. Yeah. That's a very sideways kind of logic. Mm, yeah. I really like that. Like, it, it, it makes no sense. You can see at least some sense in the, oh, something is more valuable when it's one of a kind. OK, fair enough. And also something is more valuable when it's fulfilled its inherent purpose. Okay, no, that's... <laughs> I'm not sure about that one. Your first one was good. Your second one is a, a jump in logic. It's, it's really interesting how people rally behind the whole thing. It's, it's, it kind of reminded me of like... Um, so this is something that I sort of get, but I've never really uh, acted in the same way. That like how some people think things are worth more if they're like the, in their orig original packaging. Like, you know, so like, let's say if you're a collector of action figures and like, okay, this has never been open, so therefore it's worth more. And like, it's it's something that we all kind of accept, but you also have to be like, why though? Why is it worth more? <laughs> like, there's not really a great reasoning behind it, but it's just something that everybody accepts quite naturally. Um, and like with money and that kind of thing, it is the same. Like, um, yeah, we all do put a lot of faith into this. Now, obviously that faith has been shaken a lot now because of like the way the economy has gone but even if you think about like when you're a kid and before you even have this concept of economics or anything imagine so like someone questioning the idea that like oh 
here here's a fiver but like it might not be worth a fiver you know like you just it's just like the concept of like something not being worth what it says it's worth is very unusual i remember hearing from a, a mother who uh needed to change for something so she went to her son's like piggy bank and you know got out the coins but she gave him whatever the, the value was in like you know it was like worth a fiver or it was worth more like it was actually worth less like he had whatever three something in coins she gave him fiver but he couldn't like he was like no you've given me one piece of paper and you've taken <laughs> you know whatever it was yeah. like a dozen coins uh, and she was like really trying hard to explain to him like no this is this is worth more you know um it it is interesting to did note the notion what you sorry brought up there about the original packaging thing and, and value um and and this weird it's like in a weird way um it seems like i i've just finished uh, teaching a, a module on cultural studies to uh, first year students so one of the uh kind of arguments that kept coming up or that i kept kind of reiterating to them was this like argument and how we assess the impact of culture whether we look at production or consumption like you know i whether you say look at say a particular film and say well you know there are this messages in the film put in by like the uh you know producers whatever it's a pro-capitalist or patriarchal or you know feminist or whatever it might be ergo you know then like but you you run the risk of kind of assuming that then everyone who watches the film gets that exact same message from it or do you then conversely look at like consumption and say well these people are you know um consuming this text in different contexts with different ideas and putting their own spin on it and so on and it seems like there's this with, with stuff like that whether it's like um how these products accrue value stuff in its original packaging or like the stamps with the errors is this very production based thing where it's this idea of like if you're taking out its original packaging you are then using it for your own thing whether it's say like you know original star wars toys that you you know you've played with as opposed to kept in in the original packaging you've used them so then they're less valuable because they're not just a pure product mm. of production they've now got like the marks of your <laughs> consumption on them whether that's like the arm is a little looser because you are like moving it up and down to simulate lightsaber fighting or mm. whatever else it might be you know um or you see it uh, i find it fascinating in a I've never been into like the genre of property porn where it's just oh these people are going to buy a new fancy house let's watch them go around to fancy houses or they're trying to sell their own house uh, but like a lot of my family are and occasionally like I'll sit in and watch it and I remember there was one particular one where the, the premise of the show is about like a person who comes in to help people sell their houses and the whole thing is just based on make it look as impersonal as possible you know so you kind of you remove say like they, there's a lot of moments where going to like teenagers or kids rooms so that'll be taken down all the posters they have uh and i, I can sort of see the logic behind it and that's like you want to kind of present a blank canvas so then the buyer comes in and they're getting more of a sense of like oh i can see how i can make this my home rather than seeing it as someone else's but it does kind of tie into the same notion of like any anything of your own like anything personal it's just devaluing this and tainting it in some way and it needs to look as impersonal and kind of like just a mar uh, just as a marker of the it's uh you know production as, as possible like there must be any visible signs of consumption any visible signs of like individual 
interacting uh, interaction you know what's really product. funny so i was thinking there like while you were saying that just the idea of like buying things like uh new and second hand as well like i don't know about you but like depending on what it is that i'm buying like if it's something like electronic goods like uh if it's a movie or a game or something i tend to always want to get something new um in my like i could probably justify that on the idea that like well if it's second hand there's a chance it might not work but I know deep down what it really is. Like, I just want it to be new and shiny. I just don't want it. Like you said, I don't want any of these marks of consumerism to be on it. But funnily enough, and like uh, in a similar kind of vein with books, I find it to be different because I don't know about you, but I love going into a secondhand bookshop far more than going into like, you know, a brand new one. Like, and I generally speaking, I will always look at the secondhand section first if I'm just like browsing and this this has so many different layers now that I'm thinking about it, because if I'm ordering a book online on Amazon, it's different again. I don't want to get, um, you know, a secondhand book because that's just it's a secondhand book that's in a warehouse and like there's no kind of history behind it. You know, I want a new one there. Or if it's a book that I'm really looking forward to coming out, then again, it has to be new. But I love the idea of picking up a random books like I have no idea what this book is. And like, I don't know who owned it. And look, there's little notes in here. It's like, oh, this is such a little treasure, you know? Yeah. Um, it's weird how, for me personally, anyway, with books, it's a very unusual one because there's many different layers on like how you look at it. Like if it is very impersonal, like, and, you know, you want it to be shiny. If it's a new big fancy thing, yes, it has to be new. But if you're looking to the idea of like exploring past lives, like based on like the marks that they have left on this, then yeah, that's in itself interesting too. Yeah. T t two things about that. Um, one thing is that with books, I think you can extend this whole idea of them being more valuable with a limited edition. When you look at how valuable a first edition of a book is, there's less of that one. That one's more valuable. It's the same book, but you know this this version has more value than this other version because it was first, or there's less of it, or you know the value changes based off that. But then, other than that, I think it comes back to you know words having magic again, or books having souls, because I think books, as you say, Steve, um, it's not the same if they're just in a warehouse, but if you can see that a book has had a previous owner or two previous owners and they have read the book and valued the book and, you know, loved the book and then passed it on, a book gains more value the more life it's had. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, absolutely. I um, uh, love buying second hand books for that reason. I, I, I write uh, mo most, well, most, like, uh, certainly fictional books I, uh, I, I read. I'll, like, write in them a lot. You know, like, I'll underline or circle bits I like or I'll just, like, write a little note for myself to kind of remember something uh, and a lot of people are who like love books are like appalled by that uh, but like to me it's like well but now this copy is the only one in the world that has my notes on it you know like it's it's mine it's it's kind of uh my uh you know own um unique little copy of it and i just like it's like having a conversation with it <laughs> actually i got a i remember getting a copy of king lear that was about like 50 years old or something uh like a little uh you know red almost school book looking thing uh, I don't say 50 years old that it was of some remarkable value like a very cheaply produced copy but I love to consider it like about three uh, different sets of notes in it written by people as you had one of them written in this very fancy flowing handwriting which were better than anything I, I could write where it would be like these kind of you know notes on like the team of whatever coming up here and then one that was written in that just felt like it was someone like 
desperately cramming for an exam the night before. So they're just writing down like the most glaringly obvious things to stick it into their head. So there's a bit like like the bit when Edmund repents on his deathbed, uh, which is the worst part for what's otherwise one of my favourite Shakespearean characters they just had written Edmund Gold now <laughs> <laughs> or, or like like when, when Kent is defending Cordelia at the start like it's kind of the moment that establishes you, you like if you're watching or reading the play you get a sense of like okay Kent's sort of a voice of reason he's kind of afraid to stand up to Lear but you know in a way that Cordelia is but like he's clearly more sympathetic than Regan or Conroll are and these flatterers and he's certain Kent good <laughs> but, but they, they were obviously kind of into it emotionally too because the bit at the start when, uh, when Kent and Gloucester are talking and Gloucester's kind of like insulting Edmund and like, ah, this, this bastard you're like you know and they were like I fucked his man some haystack and like oh, I've got this young lad as a result and they just certain poor Edmund <laughs> poor Edmund <laughs> indeed like emotionally engaged enough with his these these very vivid uh, direct feelings about the <laughs> oh man I love that that's so good um do you know, actually, one thing we didn't really talk about that I found really interesting, it's again, it's one of those things, it's a theme that's present and very interesting, but I'm not sure how well it explores it. So again, I'd like to see uh, your general point of views on it, is the idea of multiverse theory. Um, so at one point, uh, Moist is thinking about how it's crazy to think how me delivering this one letter to the old man who basically decides, uh, okay, he's going to marry this woman now because... He, is, he wrote to her previously and he presumed she didn't write back because she didn't feel the same way about him as uh, he felt about her. But then because he delivers this letter like, you know, many, many years later, he's like, oh, you were so brave to do this. Most people wouldn't. And now we're getting married. And I'm like, wow. And it's interesting there because um, the post office basically acts like a bottleneck for all these alternative realities that could potentially happen because like a letter can mm-hmm. change like the fate of anybody's world completely and this is highlighted by the um the weird mail sorter generator thing that they have in the basement <laughs> yeah which um is you know bringing in letters that haven't been written yet or like uh you know when someone what was it someone submits a letter to be posted but the sorter has already produced the letter 10 minutes before it's arrived um so for me it's it's interesting that it touches upon it kind of fizzles out but it's more something to ruminate on rather than needing a fixed conclusion um what do you guys think of it like do you think like does it does it say anything like interesting or useful that hasn't been said before other than like the concept of like multiverse theory what do you guys think? Um, I really like that as well. I'd actually forgotten about the mail sorter in the basement. <laughs> so thank you for reminding me of that. That was one of my favourite moments in it, is um, the way they talk about that and the way it works and the way they have to stop it working because it just cannot exist. Um, I think it's maybe something that Terry Pratchett has explored enough in the world of the wizards that you, mm. you already know that this is a thing. Um, I think... If he had have tried to work it into the novel more, it might have just derailed things a little bit too much because it's something that you kind of have to nod to, acknowledge, and then move on with the plot in this mm. particular book. What do you think, Colin? Yeah, no, I completely agree, Rose. I think it builds very well on the fact that he's discussed this idea in previous 
book so you don't need it dealt with in detail here you're just like it's kind of just extending it to the world of letters like we've seen it come up with the library uh, and the power of words and, and language and these uh, quantum bottleneck sort of places uh, so you know when, when you see it brought up with the post office you're like oh yeah that makes perfect sense in, in this world by the things we've already seen discussed this would work this way and the interest I suppose is in then using that to underpin the value of the post office in the the world of the book rather than going into detail and exploring it itself I, I do think the bit where Moist um, reads the letter from the person written 50 years ago and wonders like did they ever meet and what happened is wonderfully melancholy and is kind of undercut by the fact that when he delivers it they end up meeting up and getting yeah. married mainly I think maybe Rose maybe you feel this a little less but I, I think for me and perhaps Steve it's because there's a very similar bit in uh, Half Full of Sky which is the last one we read where you have the old couple mm. you know get together after years so like it, in itself it's kind of sweet but coming after that I sort of felt like I don't know, like having having seen it done once, I, I maybe I wanted the alternate take where rather than having this, uh, I sound like a sadist here, rather than having this old couple find happiness, mm. I kind of wanted more ruminating on the the melancholy what might have been this that like that would spore moist on to you know seeing seeing the the value of the uh, post office. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Um, yeah, so like I totally agree with that. I think it's. Uh, it would, I think it would have been better to be more of a melancholy moment um, because, yeah, like Colin said, that we had that moment in Half Full of Sky. I think it's unfortunate here, though, because that moment where they get together in this particular book, I feel like it's sort of done a little bit better just because of the circumstances of it. Like, whereas in Half Full of Sky, um, uh, it's a case of Tiffany finding... Uh, all the money that the old man has, which has been put there by the uh, We Free Men. And basically the man kind of realizes, oh, well, now I finally have enough money. I can go and like, you know, go marry this old woman. It's like, it's a, it's a sweet moment, but I think the setup is better here. So it would have been a better moment. There's, there's a lot of examples, I feel, of that in this book where there's like um, things are set up and have the potential to be done better in this book. But because they've been done before, like the multiverse theory in particular, I feel like is one that could have been explored really, really well because the setup with the post office is a really interesting one for exploring multiverse theory. But because it's been explored before, I think in particular, Colin, you might be able to tell me this one was it interesting times where it's like the butterfly effect with the butterfly that causes thunderstorms. Is that that book? Yeah, yeah. It's it's the uh, the quantum weather butterfly mm. Uh, and you also have a thing in interesting times like he gets sent to the Agatian Empire in the first place because there's the like one ant out of place in Hex that mm. uh, you know uh, misplaces the calculations and, and then Jingo plays a lot in the multiverse theory with Vimes as um, disorganizer relaying news from a alternate uh, timeline that's right and actually just thinking about I've forgotten about that and while I do absolutely love that as a concept I feel like this probably would have been the best book to explore multiverse theory so it's kind of a shit like with interesting times I felt like it was sort of shoehorned in it was kind of like we need a theme to kind of work adjacent to the narrative and it was kind of selected for that reason um, but it doesn't it's not really a natural fit whereas with this one I think it would have been a much more natural fit and it also I think would have allowed us to explore the um, 
You know, the uh, basically, for want of a better word, the post office ghosts, like all the weird apparitions that are floating mm-hmm. around. That kind of fizzles out, which I think is a real shame because it's one of the parts I enjoyed the most about the book. And it just kind of stops after a while. It doesn't really feed into the plot in any way, um, which I think is a huge shame. Um, that might be part of the reason why uh, this felt like a little bit of a letdown for me because I feel like there's missed opportunities there. Um, I, I understand why he didn't explore these avenues because, as you said, they have been explored already. And but yeah, I'm still I still feel like slightly let down. I was also thinking how um, with the thing with the stamps, it. Oh, uh, before I say anything else, Colm, you haven't read Making Money yet, have you? I have, yeah. I read it like years Okay, ago. and Rose, you've read it before, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's, um, I feel like it's kind of a shame that he's exploring the, you know, how the economy works in this book when clearly making money is like entirely focused on that. So I know, even though I remember enjoying making money, I feel like that's probably going to be a bit of a retread of this book as well. So there's, I feel like there's some overlap happening with this book and this is like the real focal point of that overlap. And that might be why what affected my enjoyment of this particular book. Yeah, although I suppose most um, the, the general sense in this book of again the the value of things being sort of uh, not maybe not hollow, but kind of like constructed uh, via language, via people's belief. It, yeah, like it's the money is a part of that, but it ties into so many other parts of the book with like pins, with the post, with you know. Um, with everything else that uh, it didn't bother me t- too much. Oh, I see what you mean, and that like it kind of feels like knowing in hindsight that he'll have a whole book to explore this. Uh, does he have to touch it now? But for me, it fits really well hmm. with all the other stuff he touched on here. I will say I, I kind of agree with you with the post office, where I, I think the um, like Pratchett sometimes has a knack for, and I can't quite put my finger on it because it, it isn't like he goes into these lengthy, rich descriptions of like place or landscape but he can some it's a lot of his books give you a really vivid sense of place whether it's a city or a single building and the post office here i think is like really uh vividly depicted like in my head i could picture it perfectly with these big cavernous halls and this kind of like neoclassical architecture and the big piles of letters covered pigeon shit and like you know the, the, the kind of avalanches of letters and these like unexplored upper caverns of it and a little room where uh, Stanley and Payne live and sleep mm. reminded me of when I worked night shifts in a Dublin bus garage re- cleaning and refueling buses and myself and two of the other fellas had, when we you'd, you'd work here till 6am but you never had work all the way till 6am mm. so we'd go and like just try and like sleep the last few hours of the, the shift in like a darkened locker room Um well, I, I tried doing that, but they just kept talking, so then I slept down the back of the ghost bus. Uh, Brilliant. So I was terrified. I was, I was like, what if I just sleep through and I wake up in the back of a bus that's just out on the roof? <laughs> so I was like, okay, the ghost bus doesn't go until like eight at night. I'm never going to sleep. <laughs> you know? I'm never going to sleep that long. And then I those little curtains down the back for spooky effect. So I, I just sleep down the back of that. But um, but that, that, that remind you know, that... Uh, their little locker room reminded me very much of that um and it's quite eerie with the the voices and all at start and that obviously naturally fades once the building itself gets burnt uh but you do get like 
that sense of the ghosts and the you know what might have been the um uh alternate realities kind of thing like it doesn't completely go away and it sort of like underpins the whole point of the book of why this is valuable in the first place why it why why we are invested in Moist trying to revive this, you know, and, and why he himself is getting more invested in it. But it, it, I suppose the, the mood and tone of it in being something kind of very eerie and mysterious changes into uh, based around something more practical and in, in just how he's going to try and beat the, the clacks and so on. And that's still really engaging in itself, but it is sort of a pity that, like, this kind of, again... Pratchett's influence uh, is not afraid of showing his um, Mervyn Peak influences and I was very much getting Gormenghast vibes of this big crumbling grand building with a few decaying servants who are clinging to ritual is very Gormenghasty. Uh, this area is he's explored fruitfully elsewhere so I can't blame him for taking it in another direction but it's done so well mm. here that does seem like a little bit of a pity when you veer away from yeah. that. What do you think Rose? Um I don't agree so much, but I think that's just because I, I love this book too much and I'm maybe too close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I don't think that they necessarily, all of the things with the ghosts and the letters and the voices and the memories, I don't think they fizzle so much as they get resolved over time. Like that can't really stay when the letters are are going and being delivered because that's why they're talking, because they want to be delivered and then they get delivered. I think it kind of gets solved by the situations being resolved gradually. And then, of course, as you say, Colin, when the building gets burnt down, then a lot of the letters burn with it. Um, so I don't see that as an issue. Um, I think as well, if Terry Pratchett was going to have explored those other avenues, I think something else in this book would have had to be sacrificed because I don't think he could have done that and the Clack story and had guilt as the antagonist yeah. and all that. And it's already quite a long book. So I think if he had have explored the ghosts more and the voices more and the multiverse more, then another part of this book that I really like would have had to be sacrificed for it. Yeah, that's true. And actually thinking about it, what we were just talking about, that whole fetishization of like, um, you know, unique products in their original packaging and so on. That's kind of neatly subverted here with the fact that you have throughout like the post office building being the symbol of like the, you know, grandeur and history of the post office itself uh, like I, I love how affected Moist is by that um, Groat's nostalgic rambling oh, about yeah. it, in that he's sort of a little put off by it at first, but he's he's kind of struck by how sincere Groat is, and it keeps echoing in his head. Like like what is it? Oh, you should have been there, or there's some phrase that keeps echoing in in the back of his head. And again, like it's it's really neatly built, but but I I think it's nice overall that when you have all of that done away with like the post office building burns down all those letters burn down but at that stage they built something that kind of matters enough in the community and in people's minds to go on ahead anyway you know and it doesn't matter if it's not in the original packaging anymore of that building you know it, it is going to be kind of rebuilt and it's going to be its own new thing it's sort of like the old philosophical conundrum of the uh you know, the, the ship that is, like, rebuilt bit by bit over many, many years until eventually at one stage it's constructed entirely of parts that weren't in the original, but it's still bearing the name, and is it still, you know, can you draw a sort of line of continuity there? Here we're kind of seeing the same thing, but, like, the post office theoretically has all these links with its past broken in the building itself being burnt and these old letters being burnt, but they built something that matters enough to people that that will sustain it. Uh 
and I think that's kind of like um, I don't know, like I suppose a healthier, more uh, nuanced way of looking at things than just fetishizing these preserving these uh, originals in one very particular shape and actually uh, it's a bit of a reach but has some parallel for you know I suppose something we see now across a lot of like culture uh, you know with stuff like remakes or sequels or different takes on you know original uh, things you have this this uh, battle going back and forth between the people who just want to see this you know iterations of the same thing being repeated or people who want to take uh you know, uh, take whatever various franchises in in different directions. You know, you, you very much saw played out with the Star Wars sequels. There, we had like Last Jedi taking this huge left turn in in terms of subverting some of the conventions of the series, and then Rise of Skywalker going going back to the well of all of these kind of familiar Star Wars tropes and conventions, uh, and the, the notion of the post office being this grand old tradition that's being revived, but also completely changed while maintaining some of the spirit of what made it special in the first place is I suppose like an interesting look at how to get a kind of healthy balance there mm. and there's um, actually and it's interesting that you use the parallel of Star Wars because it also brings to mind like um, the idea of like you know the author and death of the author and all that sort of thing like with um, so I, I find myself thinking of the um, I hope this doesn't become a whole Star Wars thing. But uh, I find myself thinking of like uh, George Lucas when he was doing, uh, redoing the original Star Wars trilogy and he threw in tons of CGI, which most people absolutely hate. Uh, but he is still absolutely adamant about saying, These, this is like the proper version of the film. This is how I wanted it to be. And I'm the creator of it. So like I get say, and that's quite interesting because any fan of Star Wars will probably tell you, like, otherwise, like, you know, you have a, a duty to your fans to, like, you know, try to, um, so what we want, like, we want the original thing. And if you're improving on it, you're destroying the original. Um, but then again, like, uh, if fans only get what they want, we get, you know, The Rise of Skywalker, which in itself wasn't a great film. <laughs> so, like, um, it's interesting on, like, whose responsibility it is to um present these things like in the way that we want them like so the post office like whose responsibility is it? like should it be done in such in the same way that it was before you know to preserve tradition or does it need to evolve like to work in like uh today's society and who who defines those rules and boundaries so for moist obviously he feels like it's him and like you know he's uh you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this working. And it's not quite the same, but I'm doing it my way. So, Yeah, I think it's something that has to evolve as well. Um, because obviously the post office as it was is just crumbling to the ground practically um, under letters not being delivered and under a skeleton staff of two. So it has to evolve or it's just going to stay completely and utterly stagnant. And eventually, you know, if Stanley leaves and growth leaves, then it just ends so it's something that has to evolve, mainly to deal with the clacks as well, because when something, when you have a com competition like that, when there's something else that's so obviously going to just take over and be the new thing, it's make a change or else acknowledge that you're basically done. 
there's an interesting parallel though here. So with uh, we we were talking about how the post office and the clacks basically parallels our postal system and email, but like mm-hmm. in our current reality, then like email kind of is the natural uh, evolution of the post office. So how far like would most Moist necessarily go before he eventually becomes another tax company? <laughs> That's a good question. Maybe just like somewhere. In, I mean, I think the happy happy resolution that the book tries to imply is that it's somewhere in between that it managed to hold on to its traditional values while still evolving enough to be functional. So, but still hasn't quite evolved enough to be the clax, which is in this case kind of kind of depicted as kind of like a, a instrument of the villain. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's two. I suppose key differences with how the the you know uh, the post office and the, the clacks in, in here. And one is just kind of in the, in the manner in which they're run, and, and we see you know guilt and his fellow board members being incredibly cutthroat and ruthless and greedy uh, with cost cutting and so on. But the other is the nature of the service itself, which is kind of by its nature more impersonal. You know, like because it's semaphore, you can only send like limited messages that Moist tries to tap into with the business of like, you know, send a letter to your granny and, and things like that. So there's, I don't know, when you compare different institutions and, and how they might progress, there's like those two things. There's, I, I suppose it's like a, not quite medium and message, but like, I don't know, medium and motives, you know, and that you have like inherent difference in the medium, but you also have inherent difference. You also have differences in the motives that, uh, and methods of the people who run them. The differences in the medium can't really be, you know, like are, are sort of inherent to those things. But the difference in the, you know, uh, uh, motives and methods are something that will change. Like uh, this book seems to end with the implication that the trunk will pass back into the hands of the kind of original engineers, like the Deerhearts and they're like who started it. So, you know, what will it be like then? Like, presumably, there'll still be a role for the post office in Ankh-Morpork because people have you know, gotten behind this idea of sending messages that have oh, more substance and more of a human touch, but at the same time, they won't be as uh, bitter or suspicious of the of the clacks anymore because it isn't being run by this, you know... Uh, I think, you're right. I think substance is, like, probably the important word there. I find myself thinking of, like... Um uh, whenever, like, you say to kids, like, did you write a letter to Santa Claus? Nobody ever says, did you write an email to Santa Claus? Like, and it's all, it's all down to, like, the motives of, like, how you, how you, I mean, obviously there are certain businesses or whatever that will send letters and the likes of bills and stuff out. But I feel like the motives of people sending letters tend to be a bit more familial. And, like, for emails, they just tend to be a bit more like, okay, it's more convenient so we can use it in, like, a workplace uh, kind of situation. Like, we're not investing as much into this. This is just something to make life easier. Whereas, like, letters themselves are kind of a hobby in a way, something that we can invest, actually invest in. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of a... Uh, left turn from what we're just talking about, but I really like the depictions of um, the people who work on the clacks and the way that the clacks towers work, and all these like this weirdly dedicated fatalistic group of young people who have gotten really into it. You know, and you have your man his granddad, but he's only twenty four. Um, again, like like Pratchett really seems to have this appreciation of craftsmen, and I think that comes up when they have what, what's your man's name, who's like the head engineer. And the guild calls oh. him in and it's trying to convince him we need to get this done um, really quickly. And damn, I can't remember his name. But you know who I'm talking about, anyway. But he sort of um, 
you know, he he has this kind of mental rant. He doesn't say it out loud in his head, but about like how, you know, the people who worked on those towers were craftsmen and they were good at what they'd done. And you just sacked them for, you know, uh, for basically for not complying with the sort of um, the, the cutbacks and the slipshod way you were doing things and hired people who don't know any better. And this is the result. And can you expect it? And, and you really see all that, like his... Uh, yeah appreciation for for like crafts and people who have this sort of passion for just like a job well done and crafting and creating something coming up in the way that he depicts the the clacks here about in terms of like his contempt for what uh guilt and the board have done done to them in the name of like so-called efficiency and profit and also in the depiction of those like the people on the on the towers themselves like that that look and, and the whole culture that builds up like the idea of the uh the, the towers having their own voices you know and um, ghost messages being passed up and down and they have to like is it Gnu John Deerhart so it's it's passed up and down his name is passed up and down the tower forever mm. even though he's dead so he'll never truly die which some people are doing on Reddit with Terry Pratchett's name uh, just basically forever and ever mm. posting it which is a really lovely idea um, so it's it just considering the clacks have kind of been in the background of a lot of the novels up until this point just functioning more as this symbol of modernity and a changing world done you know anything done done being sort of a detailed uh um field in of themselves they're just so richly depicted here you know they kind of uh you really just instantly get a sense of how they work and how it is to work on them and yeah i, I just think it's great like and it's it's only there's only a handful of sections in a handful of pages in a book we get with these people who work on the towers and they just really stood out for me as something that seems so like lovingly done and so rich in detail yeah i um i quite like the image that is painted there um i take slight issue in that like the towers themselves seem so chaotic it's kind of hard you get like a very vague idea, but like you get the sense that the towers themselves are extremely intricate. And I find myself when I'm reading the descriptions, I get a little bit lost in what he's talking about. Um, like I'm still like the shutters. I'm still a little bit unsure of like the purpose of those. So I, I, I find even though like I enjoy getting lost in the descriptions, but I do get lost in them. It's kind of a double edged sword. And I like it, but I, I have issue with it as well. I'm, I'm, basically middling on it what about you rose how do you feel about it i think i like it but mainly because because the people who work on the clacks love it so much Mm. you know if it was all said without affection then it would be just jargon or just said for the sake of it um but i think because you get this idea that the people there are insanely dedicated to it like they practically live in the towers and there's the (laughs) <laughs> the trio on the roof that are still mad about the towers even though they don't work on them anymore mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. crackers i think too it, it would be very easy to like for him to just depict this as a strict binary where it's like oh in the traditional post office all the people who work there love their work and are very passionate and the clacks is nothing but a bunch of like drones who clock in and clock out and there's no feeling in it but instead you, you know you see something more complex where you see that like the clacks has this whole culture in and of itself of people who work there and it's it has its own value and it's kind of been strangled by the people who run it um rather than it just being inherently like 
you know, not evil, but I suppose inherently colder than than the post office. It's it's kind of it's its own has its own value. What did you think of Mister Grail or Groyle as a as a foe as a kind of sub boss that pops up? Uh, terrifying. I. Uh, I kind of have this a similar kind of reaction to him as I did to Miss Deerhard in that I thought he was set up quite well, but ultimately didn't go anywhere. Like, I wanted to like him more, but he felt a little pointless. I felt like he didn't need to be a banshee at all. Uh, he could have just been like any assassin. Um, he didn't really leave much of an impact on me, if I'm being honest. What about you? I kind of like him for those reasons, because all he basically has to do is burn down the post office. So it would have been very easy for Pratchett just to write, like, you know, Rachel Gilt hires some togs who run around and burn down the post office. And instead he goes to the trouble of, like, writing this quite mysterious, vivid character, you know, teasing us what he actually is when he has that initial meeting with Gilt where, you know, you're, you're like, is he a vampire? Is he? I thought he was a gargoyle for a while because he ate the pigeon. I was like, oh, is he some kind of moving gargoyle hybrid? Uh, and then you get a kind of like nice action scene with him and Moise fighting and that way he's vanquished wonderfully by getting shoved into that like quantum letter machine so I just think given the fact that like you're right he you know all he really does is just serve this plot function of burning down the post office I like that he was kind of quite vividly drawn given that it would have been very easy just to depict all that like in uh, in a much more straightforward um, less interesting way I've also been like I've been replaying old Metal Gear Solid games and he felt very much like like one of the kind of yeah. Metal Gear Solid sub-bosses. Like he's like Vamp or something, you know. It's just like the, the evil guy has these, uh, you know, kind of cavalcade of, of helpers beneath him who are, uh, you know, who all have their own weird powers and quirks. Uh, given that they, they usually have teamed names in Metal Gear. So I was thinking like if, if you made a, a Metal Gear themed um, Discworld game, presumably guilt all his minions would be called Mr. Something and Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip would also be part of his, his squad that you'd have to beat on the way to facing him. I don't know, I presume like like you, you'd play it as one of the Watch and Vine to be like the guy you radio back to, like the Colonel or, or Major Zero and talk to for advice. Um, I'm going into too much detail on this project that will never be realised, but this is very much kind of uh, colouring my view of Grail was thinking of him as a as a Metal Gear Solid type, you know, vivid, colourful, melodramatic. I've never seen ever it could happen. I think it's also, <laughs> I think it's also very Reacher guilt to try and deal with this problem by having a personal banshee, like this incredibly melodramatic, over the top reaction. He couldn't just have a thug or an assassin. You know, he, he describes himself as a tiger and nobody else realises, like, and he's fully disclosing and he, you know, they refer to him as a pirate and he literally has, you know, the the hair and all of the signifiers, everything mm-hmm. about him is a pirate. Um, he's fully upfront about it and, and, yeah. Then, yeah. <laughs> and then his go-to for solving problems is to have a banshee on staff and an Igor, you know, an Igor. Hmm. I, I love too, given that upfrontness, that confrontation he has with Veterinary at the start when they're talking about uh, Toad. Um, and it, it's sort of, you know, I mean, it's not quite upfront in the sense that they're, you know, they're kind of sniping at one another, but in a coded way. But when you think about the different people who've opposed Veterinary throughout the, the books, they're usually hidden in the shadows in some way. They rarely directly confront them. And guilt is essentially as direct as it comes in 
you know, having this, this like, coded sniping with veterinary in front of witnesses. Mm. Uh, and uh, for me, it very quickly established and was like, oh, well, this guy can, you know, like, uh, can crack wise and, and barely spar with veterinary in a way that we haven't seen anyone else do. So, you know, kind of won, won over my interest very quickly. Um, so do any of you guys have anything more to say or will we jump to the, the yeah, questions I'm, and I'm, comments I'm we've got finished. for this? I've got nothing else really to add. <laughs> oh, actually, there is one thing. Sorry, just one of my favourite quotes because every now and then there's one that pops up but one of my favourite quotes came up here was um, before Moist gets his suit and he, he, like, he asks uh, Mr. Pump to go out and get him a good suit uh, because in his internal monologue, he says to himself, a smooth tongue was never much use in rough trousers, which I just think is a really, really good quote. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other thing for me is um, something that I didn't pick up the first time around. Maybe I didn't know this then, but um, when they're talking about the golems and when Moist finds out that Veterinary has had Mr. Pump follow him and that Mr. Pump can actually mm. do him harm. There's a really good Asimov reference followed by what I think is a really good Robocop what? reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought you'd like this too. <laughs> um, Moist is talking to Veterinary and essentially, I don't know if I'll be able to find it. Um, as I said, I've got a Kindle and it's very new to me. But in any case, um, he has found out that this golem is going to be able to do him harm. And he says, no, 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 I know about golems. Um, they, have, they have rules. They have, <laughs> they have rules they have to follow. Um, you know, a golem cannot do a human harm or through an action <laughs> allow a human to be harmed. And like, mm. that's Asimov's first rule of robotics. The, the, the golems are robots. And then after that, Veterinary tells him about a secret fourth oh, directive. Oh, yeah, fuck. Excuse me. He's got a secret fourth directive. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. Yeah, now I know the first one is definitely an Asimov reference because it's practically word for word, but the fact that it's a secret fourth directive code in what he's now established as a robot makes me think that Pratchett has a RoboCop reference. Actually, um, just speaking of references, uh, there's one point. Um, I don't know if it actually is a reference, but I think there's a reference to Lord of the Rings. Uh, when they're looking through the, um, you know, the char- the Omnisphere thing. And they say the first thing they see is this, uh, let's see if I can find it. It's like a giant red eye. And they're like, oh, like, so I think, and uh, then it's like quickly reveals, says, oh, I think you're, or Mr. Ridicully, I think you're like leaning too far into the Omnisphere. You need to back up. <laughs> I just thought that was really, really good. <laughs> Cool. Uh, well, I, I, we got we got a couple, a fair couple of comments on, on this. Um, Brian Holding at Boogie Swires says, "At first, Moist seemed like another generic young man along the lines of Mort or Victor in earlier books. Yet he is the one that Sir Terry Pratchett decided had enough of interest to develop. What made him different?" Now, like we touched on the fact that, like, a, you know, a strength of this book is that Moist is more vividly uh, depicted than, than these other kind of generic standalone uh, young man characters and obviously Pratchett kind of went back to the well with uh, um, make money and, and raising steam so I I, no, I think for me like the fact that he's in a recognisable archetype as like con man and that gives him gives you more of a hook as a reader to kind of get a hold on him and say like oh, okay I know what type of character this is going to be and then gives Pratchett more to do in being able to twist that archetype around and deconstruct it. Uh, you know, I, I think helps a lot. Like, I think in, in writing, 
it's less about why you make a decision than what decision you make, and it's less about what decision you make than what you do with that decision. And like, I don't know what Pratchett's exact thought process was for like, oh, I'll do a con man guy this time. But the fact that he follows through with it with this kind of very interesting deconstruction of the strengths and weaknesses and conflicts of that sort of character is something that is very interesting to read about yeah, for me. I also think a very big strength with Moist is the fact that, like you said, that he has an archetype that he can work within, but he also takes some um, characteristics and then he kind of completely breaks them down because uh, at the start of the book, uh, we learned that Moist has never really uh, been himself. He's always been a disguise in, ca- in character, like uh, to suit the situation. So now he's very self-aware that he's um, acting as himself and not somebody else, which gives us a very inter- interesting introspective into his character. And it just allows him to develop really, really organically. I think it was just a very interesting and unique experience for Terry Pratchett to write this guy who just developed on page very, very well. And I think just it was just the strength of it that allowed him to come back and say, there's more to this character that I can put him into more stories. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, to be honest, I think in terms of sticking with him as well and him coming up in other books, it helps that he just arrives at this stage where we're seeing the kind of stasis and status quo of the disc world, like sociologically and, and economically been shook up. Like you have earlier books where stuff like films and rock music are introduced and then done away with and the status quo is restored. And here, obviously, Pratchett's kind of moved into a space where the clacks arrive and the clacks stay and they affect the world we, we read about. The post office gets revived and the post office stays and affects the world we read about. So there's more room for a character like Moist to take him and say, what else can he revive and how can that impact on the world around it rather than... You know, if you're kind of restoring the, the status quo at the end of moving pictures, like what what mm. do you do with Victor at the end of that? You know, would you like maybe you could he could have done a thing where like with all of these books, uh, like moving pictures, soul music, uh, uh, to a extent Reaper Man of these things being introduced, it's the same person who's at the center of them. But yeah, I don't, I don't, it's interesting don't be actually because like satisfying. he because he's so, working initially within the archetype of con man. Uh, based on the trajectory of the following two books, now I haven't read Raising Steam, so I don't know exactly how it goes, but it seems like his new archetype role is just as the entrepreneur, like, you know, just bringing in all these, like, new things into the Discworld. Because, like, he brings in, like, the post office, he brings in, like, uh, the banks and monies, like, you know, reviving them. And it seems, I don't know, but I'm presuming he brings in the railroads again. So, yeah, interesting, though. Uh, our old pal, the Wizard of the White Tulip, had a couple of comments. He said, uh, "I read I uh, I read the book for the first time on I uh, sorry I read it for uh, on my recent reread and really enjoyed it. What older technologies or ideas do you retain a fondness for? I love my non touchscreen Pebble smartwatch to death. Um, I suppose for me it's definitely like like physical books. You know, um, uh, my brother uses a Kindle mm. and kind of uh, finds it really convenient for." commuting in and out without having a big book in your bag but I've, I've never really been able to move to that um i just kind of very much like reading books off the page and it's sort of like physical process of like writing on them uh, and the rest of that yeah um i've so um i'm sure as i've mentioned before so i'm currently in japan stationery is a very big thing here so i've yeah did you not know i thought you were teaching yeah i'm not in wexford right? here <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, a very big thing here is like stationery. Like Japan has incredible stationery. So I, it's kind of revived my love of like um, writing letters and postcards. So like I've sent quite a, even uh, before the post office, ironically, before the post office here was like completely locked down. So I can't really send any more letters back home or anything because they're just like not doing that here. Uh, but before it did, I was sending an awful lot of letters just because like I didn't really have an awful lot else to do at my time. So, um, but even before that, I, I really enjoyed just like writing letters and writing postcards. It's a lot of fun. Um, I would have said books as well, um, but now I finally came and bought a Kindle. Um, but to be <laughs> fair, it did take coronavirus-based quarantine before I would finally give in and buy myself a Kindle. Um, I was worried about possibly running out of books, so I finally came around on the Kindle front. Um, other than that, I've never really liked the, the newest, newest technologies anyway. So I think if it's not old books, then it would be. Um, so you know how now you would have had MP3 players come in first. And then after, the, after that, you've got iPods and you've got your iPod touches and you've got, I don't know where it actually is now. Um, but I kept my four... No, no, no. It, it could hold 150 songs. I had an MP3 player that held 150 songs um, from, wow. 2018, from 2008, and I kept it for about 10 years. It just kept going. It's like the Nokia 3310. <laughs> I MP3 actually, <laughs> I'm the same as you. I, I hate like the, because nearly everybody I know has like just music on their phone. Actually, there's something. Uh, CDs. So I, I can't stand the whole like uh, subscribe to Spotify and you have like all the music in the world. That for me is a system that I absolutely despise because and this is bringing it back to the idea of attributing value to things, because if I have access to absolutely everything, I don't invest in anything. So, you know, I I kind of need to have like, <laughs> if not like the physical copy in my hand, at least have to have like, you know, I went out, sought out this CD and like, even if it's online, like I just say, I downloaded these songs because I wanted to listen to these songs and then I can, I can form an attachment with it. But if it's a case of like, hmm, I think I'll just put on a uh, discover weekly playlist on Spotify. I can't really, uh, you know, form any kind of attachment with that music because yeah, it's just like in yeah, the ether. I, I know what you mean. I actually, I yeah, have records for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, like I, there's that sense of you, you put one on and it's more purposeful and then you listen more than if it's just like if you have every song ever it kind of becomes background music for whatever you're doing um, well, there's a really good article uh, by Lindsay Zolads I think her name is I, I might be misremembering that for The Ringer where it was she wrote it after they discontinued the iPod Classic and she was kind of talking about that um that idea of basically when you have more choice you're limited in some other ways than when you you have like a kind of constrained choice um i said it is very good i was thinking too about like when you think about technology and like old ones very you know and the convenience of modern ones it's very much a sliding scale where like something like rose brought up the example of her you know mp3 ad for 10 years but like at the time that emerged that would have been you know completely cutting edge to uh like cd players or walkmans or stuff like that and I was thinking about it with terms like video games, where, like, in a way, as a medium compared to, say, like, film or television or, you know, books or radio, it's it, it's much newer. But within that medium, then you have stuff like, you know, whatever, the 32-bit era or the 16-bit era that are now kind of very uh, passe. I, I won't go too far into this, but it's something I've discussed with you and Michael before, Steve, about, like, 
the idea of I think there's something lost when as the systems get more and more advanced and can essentially ape realism more and more there's a kind of unique uh, aesthetic to like original games that were kind of like limited in the fact that they couldn't be real so they had to come up with their own sort of aesthetic and their own uh, their own ways of storytelling rather than just being interactive films um, and I, like so for that like mm. I, I kind of I, I usually uh, I'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to gaming and things like that um, so that's 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 one uh, comment yeah the next one he said there's so much I enjoyed about this book it makes it hard to boil down to just a couple of ideas or comments one thing I took was the idea of valuable things that can be lost in the march towards greater efficiency even if those things aren't very tangible um, and I suppose like that's something we're, we're touching on there with you know uh, it's very hard to justify your choices of these things you're hanging on to whether it's like letter writing or physical media or whatever but it's still quite strongly felt and I don't know it feels kind of rootless and unfair to impose this logic whereby like if you can't completely justify your use of this like older you know form of doing things on purely efficient utilitarian terms then you're some kind of luddite dinosaur who's just got his or her head in the sand you know I feel like that's a slightly blinkered way of looking at things but it's often the dominant way of looking at things in the way like uh you know these things are mm. discussed in a lot of the media and in, in how you know economic stuff works mm. no i'm quite sentimental i like to keep the old things i'd rather have the older physical version than the newer electronic version of anything even if the new thing is even if it's more efficient to get something right away if you could get the physical version and maybe you have to wait a week if i'm ever ordering tickets for anything i prefer to get the physical version posted to me instead of getting the e-booking Mm-hmm. You can just show somebody on your phone. I'd rather have the physical ticket and then I can put it in a box. Um, same with when I was devastated when they started switching to, you know, cinema tickets now are so flimsy and the print fades oh, yeah. so fast. You know, and you would, the old version is the cardboard stubs and they last. Yeah, I remember so I had an, a massive box full back when we were in college, actually, and like. I think actually all three of us kind of lived in the cinema for a while. Me and you especially, Rose. We went like three times a week sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember I had a box absolutely <laughs> full of those stubs. And I was heartbroken like to look at them again a little while later. when they You could see when they changed it. And um, yeah, the ink had faded on so much of them. And I couldn't tell what the films were anymore. And I just had to like, I might as well to throw these out because I don't know what the films are. He says here to, I also want to take a moment to appreciate that even though Sir Terry passed over five years ago, his name does live on in the clacks, if you will. The two of you, and I suppose extended to the three of us here, finding ways to discuss his work continents apart are a great example of the mark he left on the world. Which is true. And uh, oh, yeah. lovely, lovely <laughs> to hear. He just had a few other comments out, like Moist and Adero, Ad, Adero, sorry, Adora work very well for me. Maybe because they're good characters on their own. I know we, we used to do feel otherwise that they are very good characters on their own but don't work quite as well as a couple as they might but guilt being a dark reflection of the hero and just one thing he says here that we hadn't touched on is Reed Cully picking a book for the, the race at the end uh, yeah which is a lovely moment oh, yeah. I think it's, it's very clever but I like too how it you know you see that and you think ah this is how the the clacks are going to win uh, but then at the back of my head I was kind of thinking Oh, it's a pity. That's clever, but also it's Rick Cully doing that. Like it should be Moist or Adora or one of our main characters finding a way to, you know, win here. And then of course that isn't the way they win, but it's a nice kind of twist where you, 
you know, you that you you know, Moise is going to have something up his sleeve, or the race isn't going to plot out the way you would imagine, and you you're kind of think it's going to be that with the book, and then it's 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 not. I think that speaks as well to the fact that people are really rooting for the post office to win. You know, it, it really is the underdog here. Um, but you have the bookies betting on it, like Moist is going to win. You have Ridcully really getting a dig in here by <laughs> giving something that physically can just be transported and shipped, but is going to be an absolute nightmare to code into whatever semaphore version. And then which Moist is able to make use of as well by picking the color illustrations, which mm-hmm. are harder to code. <laughs> so he's able to get something out of that as well. But I think it's nice to see other people getting behind the post office. Remember that the trunk threatens to sue the university over slander when the uh, the fellow in Genoa is reading out the, the letter that uh, or the message that Moises sent and Riccoli says to him, go on, sue the university. We've got a whole pond yeah. full of people who sued the university. Lastly, we had an email from Miriam Luge. Uh, I'm uh, probably mispronouncing that, so I apologise, Miriam. She says, uh, Kiarana from the naturally self-isolating Cook Islands. Super keen to hear your take on Gung Postal in the near future. I'm a big fan of the relationship between veterinarian Moist with all its witty and pointed banter. How do you feel about the relationship between Moist and Adora Bell? I personally find Adora Bell such a cool character, but then feel that the depiction of her falling for Moist is a bit uncomfortable. Prickly damaged young woman falls for cheeky, death-defying anti-hero. Also, do you see any echoes of Carrot and Angua in Moist and Adorabelle? Uh, cheers, and please give up your own witty and pointed banter. Um, so, what do you guys think of that? Well, I'm glad somebody else picked up on the idea that... Um, we have witty and pointed they're, banter. They're not necess- well, that too. I mean, we've been waiting know. for so long. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm glad that somebody else like picked up on the idea that while, yes, they are very good characters, they might not necessarily make a good couple. Um, I'm glad we're not alone in that. Um, I do, I have to say, I do really, really like the banter Moist has with Veterinary. I think that's like, again, some of the strongest moments in this book. Um, we're, we're so used, to, usually when we're having um, Veterinary having any kind of banter with anybody, it's usually very, very one-sided or it's with Vimes, you know, it's one of those two. Um, and it's nice to have an alternative, a different character who actually can kind of hold their own against Veterinary, kind of like do this little verbal dance that they usually do. Um, yeah, I think it's very, very well done. Yeah, and um, what would you say about the echoes with Carrot and Angua and, uh, and um, Adora and, and Moist? I, I, I kind of see it in that, like, like Angua and Adora are both sort of, like, hard-bitten, quite perhaps, like, cynical characters in their own way in terms of their view of other people that find a source of, like, hope in their, their partner. Uh, but there definitely is a difference in, like, the people they've found to do that you know you have moist to i suppose it's it's what seems to attract him to adora is that he's like is this sharp con man but has a kind of like heart underneath it all um so like in some ways he's kind of opposite of the outwardly respectable grand trunk who are ultimately quite rootless and ruined her family he's you know outwardly uh like unrespectable um but you know and uh sly and scheming but ultimately has more of a moral center whereas carrot is just like this kind of paragon that you know uh like um angua almost struggles to reconcile with, her, with the rest of humanity that like the, like the, got the one um good person I, I i see them as quite different I, to be honest the, the big parallel what i see with carrot and angua is superman and lois lane um 
the, the, the later depictions of kind of Lois Lane is more like like a uh, career driven, hard nosed journalist who like is kind of um, like constantly, I suppose, like like looking for at you know beneath the surface and at an extra angle of, of you know of things and what's really going on and kind of like doing a lot of good journalistic work in that regard and yet goes out with the one person who there doesn't seem to be anything beneath the surface in terms of he really is as good as he you know seems and and there's like a parallels there with Kara. Yeah, um I find it very difficult to find parallels between the two couples because whereas I think Carrot and Angua work really well as a couple, I don't think that uh Moist and Adora do. So I'm not really seeing a great connection there. Like I love how Angua and Carrot work because like there's this constant dance between the two of them where Carrot's trying to like show Angua like that there's good in the world and you know all that sort of thing. Whereas Angua is constantly trying to like show Carrot that like you can't just be so oblivious. You have to be a little cynical in order to function in this world. And that constant back and forth is what makes them really interesting. With Moist and Adora, I don't really get that so much. There's nothing really, there's kind of something for them to bounce on in, but it feels a little flat. Um, like Adora is basically, uh, I, I, I just don't, I don't see them working as a couple. So I don't see them as interesting and less of a parallel. I just, I just can't really get behind that. Yeah, do you know what? I think it's a really interesting question because I can see sort of the parallel between Angua and Adorabelle, like you guys were saying. But Moist and Carrot, if you think about it, are actually practically an antithesis to each other. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about Carrot in terms of Moist, Carrot is this so cheerful, kind, but as I say, oblivious, Steve. This, this man who can't even understand, you know, barely understands a metaphor, let alone understanding somebody who means mm. the opposite of what they say. And then you have Moist, who is manipulating everything around him and always thinking three steps ahead. They're as mm -hmm. far apart as you could actually get. Although I, th I think there's there's more savviness to Carrot mm. than he lets on, which you see in the the bits when he um he kind of alludes to the fact that he knows he's really the king and that everyone else knows it, and he you know plays along with that like the bit at the end of the Fifth Elephant, where he comes back and just instantly restores the chaos. Uh, that the watch had descended into with Nobby and Colon by kind of saying like you took an oath to the king and they instantly know he's uh, but but you know he, he definitely does have a much um, seem to have a much sunnier outlook than, than, than Moist does in general what she mentions about like the, the potentially uh, problematic nature of like um, uncomfortable nature prickly damaged young woman falls for cheeky death defying anti-hero I see what she means, but that didn't bother me quite so much because there's no sense of um while they do end up together, I suppose there's no sense of Adora falling for Moist in the sense of like how would you put it? Like I, I don't get any sense that he fixes her, you know, that she's had this trauma in her life of like losing her family, of like losing her family you know, her family's uh uh basically like whole money and kind of like status in life being uptorned. Um like there's no like while they end up together and she's you know, presumably happier for it. There's no sense of like, this has fully fixed all her problems or that, you know, she's uh, like, I, as far as I remember in making money, she's still kind of pursuing her golem civil rights campaign. So I, I suppose like there's, uh, there wasn't a sense in me that like, she kind of, her whole uh, identity or causes or motivations just become subsumed into her relationship mm -hmm. with him. 
Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. Um, it doesn't really seem that, like, you know, it's just uh, unobjective, uh, unob- yeah. Inev- what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> it's uh, it's not like she just kind of like uh, inarguably just falls for him completely. Um, it just it does seem something that kind of just sort of develops in a relatively organic way, if not necessarily a natural way. Um, yeah, yeah, that's all I can really say on this. Yeah, I don't think it's problematic in that sense, really. Um, I didn't find it so anyway. There's the other issues that we talked about. Um, that it doesn't feel so natural or that the chemistry doesn't seem like it's, like it should really develop that way. But I wouldn't think of it as problematic, just not quite right. Okay, well now we get to the um, the tricky task of ranking this sucker, um, which is going to be all the more difficult given that as the first and the, the Moist Von Lipwig subseries don't really have an instant... Um, uh, comparison, I suppose its nearest cousin at this stage is the truth in being like an Ag Morpork set book where you have uh, a new character uh, launching this, well, or in this case relaunching this, you know, uh, communications innovation that is going to change the, the nature of um, of how of how the, uh, Ag Morpork and, and the disc works. So. Oh, what do you think? Like, the, the better oh, or worse than the truth? This is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> um, I feel like the truth was much more focused, uh, clean cut. It had... While William the Word wasn't a better character, I, pre- I thought um, his relationship worked a lot better. And I just felt like it was a bit... It was more revolutionary in its themes with the idea of, like the knowledge being power how knowledge is manipulated also how language is manipulated and whether or not people have the right to free knowledge um i felt like it was conveyed better than anything that this book was trying to do yeah for me i think it's because this book is really all about the people in it and i just think that moist is one of terry pratchett's best characters maybe just his best standalone characters um but no, I think I'd rank him in. I'd, I'd rank him very highly, even in terms of overall Terry Pratchett characters. Um, so for me, because it comes down to the people and it comes back to how much I like Moist and how much I like his development over the course of the novel um, and the way he interacts with the people around him, that you get this insight into veterinary and the fact that you get this whole idea of building something back up from scratch. And I always like um, when they bring in a new technology something that's sort of like errors into Ankhmore Fork and then you have to see how they're scrambling to deal with it and integrate it. Um, you know, so for me, I I liked it better than The Truth for those reasons. I think for, for me, what would edge this above The Truth is that um, I think it sort of hangs together better thematically in the sense that if you think of like the, the central conflict here between the uh you know like the the clacks and the post office and like reacher guilt's kind of like i suppose like like uh con manning versus moist trying to i don't know some uses conning to summon up this spirit of something more meaningful all ties together in a way that like i i, I think a lot of the central ideas in the truth are really interesting and the mystery is fun but veterinary being framed while it does tie into the sort of manipulation of language and you know reputational stuff that that comes up in the the nature of talking about the press with the truth it isn't 
qu- I suppose it isn't as um, closely related to the central nature of the book as the the antagonist and the the main problem that spurs the thing is here. Like Pratchett himself said, when he writes an Agmorpork book, it's very hard not for it to turn into a watch book. And I feel like with the truth, you are thinking through it. You're like, why hasn't Vimes figured this out? You know, like, where, because it, it kind of feels similar to, say, something like Feet of Clay in, in the central mystery. Whereas here with the white collar crime of the uh, the Grand Trunk, you can that isn't something we've seen to watch tackle. So you can kind of see why it takes something, someone like Moist to do it and the nature of his role in the book and of the kind of the underlying themes of the book. I suppose chime more with that than with the kind of... Uh, the frame-up job of of the truth, which in itself is quite entertaining, but doesn't, I don't know, fit together as satisfyingly um, here. I strongly suspect this is going to be differences of opinion. Just I I found the story of the truth more satisfying than this one, but clearly not the case for you guys. Um, I do agree that Moist is the better character. Um, William DeWord, even though he was an okay character, he did fall a little bit flat, whereas Moist is like, uh, considerably more interesting and uh, develops much more organically um, the best I can really say like my main reasoning behind it is I feel they both tackle similar themes and I just thought the truth was much more focused not the characters weren't as good but I felt like the overall package was tighter I didn't really have much problem overlooking the thing with the watch because there's that wonderful moment where um William DeWord and Vimes kind of meet and you get to see how they interact with each other and it's great because we'd never seen Vimes from the perspective well we very rarely see Vimes from the perspective of another character and how he deals with them I just found absolutely brilliant and um, yeah I kind of feel like they had a hand in like the overall crime because or uh, the solving of that particular crime because they have people watching William DeWord and they're kind of letting it develop in a way that resolves itself quite naturally, knowing what he might do. Um, yeah, that's my personal take on it. I can understand if, uh, even though I wouldn't be happy about it, if you like, if you will insist on putting this above it, I guess I could allow it, but even though I would much prefer the truth to be higher. The benefit of having three of us on allows for easier resolution of these little, um, dispute so at the moment it's two to one to knock it higher so above the truth then is masquerade no um, definitely not sorry absolutely <laughs> flat out. i am not letting you put it above masquerade masquerade is so good and there's no way the truth is better than that or not the truth sorry uh the, the post <laughs> got a freudian slap um, to the face there <laughs> i won't argue with that because it's actually a few years since i read masquerade so i i couldn't even state an opinion on this one well i will say my big sticking point to this one, i didn't bring it up uh when we were discussing the book it just didn't come up naturally but i i sort of had it in the back of my head to bring up if we're you know when we get to this stage and kind of debating what what moves it above or below things is i'm not mad about the end of this where veterinary arrests all of the, the trunk guys in a very kind of um extra legal you know like high-handed way um like obviously Vime or Vime sorry yeah Moist has implicated them with the, his, his message that's butchered the clacks um so it makes sense then that this comes to the open and they, they all sort of break down a bit and that trigger that will trigger a trial and we're left with this idea of like they will be found out but the way that I, I feel it kind of jumps the gun where it's it, it, it like ultimately by the end of the book they haven't been found 
strictly guilty of anything. And I would have been satisfied enough with like just the notion of, well, it's out in the open now and they're in trouble. You know, the, the watch is circling around and you can expect like guilt and the other board members are going to get at some stage. But I, I feel like he kind of his reach um, exceeds his grasp a bit and like trying to jump over that to make sure that they all are apprehended and that it's kind of fully wrapped up. So you have, you know, veterinary commanding Vimes to arrest them, which the nature of veterinary as like a tyrant, which he keeps using the phrase here, like it has always been a sort of like joke or cause for thought at the back of the book where they like have those moments where like, you know, uh, like Vimes thinking, ah, democracy wouldn't work. People like Nobby would get a vote. And, you know, <laughs> like veterinary having scorpion pits and things that are brought up and aren't really treated that seriously. It's kind of a, a background joke. And and here it's um, obviously it's less a background joke and like central to resolving the the conflict at the end. Um, in a way that I think is kind of unsatisfying. Like, look politically, I mean, people might say, "Oh, look, it's problematic." Is he advocating dictatorship or you know martial law? But to be honest, I I think the the way it's executed is so outrageous and otherworldly that doesn't seem like it's like a you know, a serious message for if only this was how things would, you know, would work. Uh, like I, I didn't get any sense of it, of that. That didn't bother me, but it was more just a sense of like, in the same way that when Rid Cully presents the book and I thought, Oh, that's clever. But I also felt like, Oh, this is going to be kind of unsatisfying if Moist and the post office win because of something someone else done. I sort of felt a bit unsatisfied with the fact that we just have veterinary being a bit of a day you say machina at the end where it's like, he, he's just going to come in and arrest them all. And do it in such a way where it almost undercuts what Moist has done in getting this message out to the open, you know? Uh, like, you, what I mean, you, you're you under no illusions that Veterinary knows the trunk is up to no good, that he plants Moist there to kind of bring them down in some way. And I like all of that. Like, I like the fact that he knows, but that he's able to do so, so sweepingly at the end, almost as you're thinking... God, it really seems like he just could have arrested them any time he wanted. You know, like he, he doesn't even need a, a sniff of like of of the um, misdeeds that Moist has managed to get out into the open here. In a way where I feel like if Pratchett had played this a bit more subtly and just had Veterinary been like, oh, well, uh, that message, there's no substance to it. But gentlemen, we have to have a trial. And you, you just have the, the trunk sweating and thinking, oh, fuck, fuck, this is going to come out now. You know, then you would have been like, oh... I don't know, it would have hung together more for me. I would have felt like, oh, I see why Veterinary had Moist, you know, do this and why he couldn't just do it himself. Having him sweepingly use his tyrant powers feels a bit, I don't know, a bit, a bit unsatisfying to me. Was that a sticking point for either of you? Um, well, for me personally, I feel like, uh, because this might just be because I had such a fondness for the aspect of the book where it's dealing with the post office and the ghosts and the voices and that whole creepy mysticism part of it. Even though I can appreciate Moist's character and how organically he develops, I just really wanted it to stick with that. Um, so I found the second half of the book to be a bit more dissatisfying than the first. That ending did play into it quite a lot. Um, yeah, uh, like there's a lot of little aspects of it. It just feels a bit rushed and messy and even the bit with like the crackers or hackers or whatever they are at the end um feels a bit deus ex machina as well so yeah for me a lot of the second book feels dissatisfying but again this is just my opinion and i realize that like i just have a fondness for stuff like you know haunted old buildings and mysticism and ghosts i know that's just my 
thing that I love. So I can understand that's me being subjective. And um, for me, it did jump out a bit as being slightly uncharacteristic for veterinary. But then I do have to say that the next part of the ending where they actually get brought down by a big audit is hilarious. Like this idea of the, <laughs> there's three yeah. separate sets of auditors. There's the company auditors and the watch auditors and these externals. And they all have these big chalk circles on the ground where they're all pushing piles of paper and they've been handing paper to each other for 12 hours straight. It's, that's, it's really funny for me to see that they've taken this very banal, mundane, our world thing and that's what's really going to bring down. That's that's what's going to be the bones of the trial. So that's what really brings down the Grand Trunk and the Board of Directors as it is. And that's just really funny that it's an audit. Um, but with regards to the veterinary side of it, yeah, it did seem a bit out of character for him to just say, ah, but I'm a tyrant, so I can do what I want. Like, he doesn't normally say things like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny thing where the, uh, the whole book runs on this idea of... Um meaning and value being something that's constructed and maintained just by our belief in it and that's kind of a, a lot of the time how veterinary's power base works like in that he um you know you have the notion of the assassin's guild don't take hits on him because they all know he's too valuable um and even though he has like a personal guard and stuff there's just more of a sense of like his role as the patrician and people's um perception of him is how he exercises his power and it's like here he suddenly pivots from soft power to hard power really jarringly um in a way that doesn't feel uh yeah consistent with the, the way he operates it's not like entirely out of character but it's more like you're used to him being cleverer with the way he, he gets around people uh but yeah i like the audits of it start at the end and again um like reading it in the wake of the financial crisis you're like oh if only <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if only <laughs> there was such things but uh i suppose then we we put it there as the new number 10 above the truth and below masquerades um going postal so i mean this this list is at, at, at this entry it'll be 33 books long so like anything in the top 10 is very much the uh the toppermost to the poppermost um but that that will leave us there for this week thank you um so much for listening uh if you'd like to read us leave us a rating and review on itunes or whatever podcast service you use uh please do that's always nice helps helps gets the word out if you want to get in touch with us you can do so by email at radiomorepork.gmail.com or on facebook or twitter by just searching for radio Morpork. Um, and, and Rose, uh, I'm sure many people have been happy to have you back. So where where can they find you? Um, well, I run an online magazine. So if anybody ever wants to read some very, very good poetry, look at some really good art, read some good short fiction, then I would recommend checking out talesfromtheforest.net. And that's the main thing that I've been up to in my spare time. Thank you. Yeah, it's very good. I would wholeheartedly recommend well, uh, so I'm working in Japan. So if you look up japan.com, that'll, that's where you see all my <laughs> my finest work. Um, I've been working. I've been working on a new flag at the moment uh, with a blue circle instead of a red one. But that's uh, pretty much the, the the majority of things I've been doing. Thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye. There's a bunch of children playing outside really loudly.